We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Good afternoon, Irish fans, and welcome to another edition of the Irish Breakdown Podcast. And of course, if you look at the calendar, it's Friday. It's Mailbag Friday, and my favorite day of the week, frankly. And uh, I'm glad to be joined by my friend Brian Driscoll, the publisher at irishbreakdown.com. I am Vince D'Addario. I am the football analyst at irishbreakdown.com. And I want to say up front, Brian, this is a tough day for us uh and for everybody that that knew uh loose emoji today he was laid to rest um a a nice service at the basilica uh on campus and uh and then of course went to the cemetery and 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 did the whole thing and so uh it was a tough day and we half thought about you know just kind of taking the day and and just sitting back and just kind of, you know, letting it be. But there's no chance, no chance that Lou would have been okay with that. And I've said it a million times how much I enjoy doing these these mailbags and these live shows. And I know Brian enjoys it as well. And, and, and you know, Lou would want us to do this. And he would want us to be talking Notre Dame football. And so – and selfishly, I need it. And and we, yeah, there is no. Question. I just needed to be with our 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 people, our our friends, our our family, our Notre Dame our family. family. I just needed it today. So yeah. And um, so that's that's why we are doing the show. So for those of you that that knew that today was the day that that Lou was laid to rest and are wondering, you know, why we're doing this, because I mean, it was literally a couple of hours ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had to come home, hustle, take off the tie, and 
throw right. on. And Brian was honored to be a pallbearer at the at the service. And so we need this. And we're hoping that everybody out there needs this as well. And so we're we're excited to get after it. And we're gonna talk some some ND football and, and the draft and all kinds of fun stuff. And it's gonna be a busy uh, week, week and, and a half. And that, that's exactly right. The on. next the next 10 days are gonna be crazy. We've got the end of, of spring ball, which culminates obviously in the blue gold game. Next Saturday, we've got the draft, which yeah, is Thursday. The Blue Gold game is the day three of the draft, so that's going to be an interesting day. That is also true. trying to watch the draft and the Blue Gold game and all that Correct. kind of stuff. So. Yeah, so it's going yeah. to be interesting, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun too, though, because this is – I enjoy the draft personally. Um, yeah. I, don't, I probably don't get as deep into it as some people do, but I do enjoy watching and seeing, uh, you know – everything that's going on and the, the trades. I, I I think you and I have talked about this off the air, Brian. I would love to work in the front office of like an NFL yeah. team or or even in a college team. Just yeah. like that's the kind of stuff that I really, really enjoy. And so yeah. the draft and everything around it, the I get scouting excited aspect about. Of it. Yeah, I, yeah man. honestly, I don't watch it. I watch more draft. I watch and read more stuff about the draft than I do actually NFL games. Yeah, for I mean, sure. I, I don't watch many NFL games, but I love the draft. The draft is awesome. And, and that's why I like that movie. I know a lot of people didn't like it, but I lo- the draft day. I watch that movie every year leading up to the draft, you know, so it's just – I love I, – you know it's what? It's a lot of fun. I, can I just – segue here real quick because you, you said the draft movie right draft mm-hmm. day with, yeah. with kevin costner, kevin costner. Right? i think that movie got a bad rap i i dig that yeah. movie i really i mean yeah I watched it, at least three i think times. so look yes yeah, so there's some unrealistic aspects of it but so what it was a movie you was, know i mean correct. I, correct. I, I, I watch avengers okay i mean the whole thing is unrealistic <laughs> right? it's a flipping movie right uh, but you know right. the, the interesting thing vince is the draft has changed a lot for me in the last decade as i as i started doing recruiting and covering the team because i was chatting with a a player who's hoping to get drafted next weekend from notre dame and mm-hmm. it was like you know it just seemed like yesterday i was watching you at the under armor all american oh, game sure. or watching you at irish invasion and now you know you're you're getting ready to try to go become a professional football player and live out your dream and that yeah that's some of the um the fun part of of the draft is just For seeing sure. these young men go achieve their dreams and and because you we know the hard work that got put that went Absolutely. into it the blood sweat and tears the sacrifice and all that kind of stuff so well the bottom it, line with your story there is we're old because yes. it feels like these guys go from being a recruit to being an NFL draft prospect like, like, like that. that it really it's, does it, yeah. it's like oh god I'm old yeah that's all that means. Um, yeah, but let's jump into this thing, Brian. Uh, we had a Twitter question, mm-hmm. so I'm going to throw it to you. It was a question about the NFL draft, okay. so I will let you kind of take this one because I'm not sure exactly what the question was. So hit it. Yeah, so we we got a, a question from Coach Koch uh, among the grads this year. Who who do you think will have the best shot at making the roster as undrafted free agents? Also, who do you think could be a surprise late round pick? Uh, I'll go over in reverse order. I think the surprise late round pick could be Brock Wright. I really okay. think Brock Wright has a chance to get drafted. I think NFL teams understand that who was Brock Wright playing behind the last four years? Sure. The number one tight end drafted in the 2020 draft, This arguably the second or third tight end drafted in the 2021 draft, and a guy that's in a couple of years going, going to, to be, be a first round pick. pick. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at tight end and Michael Mayer. And so when you watch the film, you say, okay, he can block and, and, he's going to check out off the charts when it comes to character and work ethic For and sure. all those kind of things. He could have easily transferred Notre Dame, gone down to Texas tech or beat TCU or Baylor somewhere. Cause he's from Texas uh, played caught a lot more balls, but he stayed at Notre Dame because the education was important to him. 
finishing what he started was important to him. And those things NFL teams are all going to look at. And then, of course, he had a great, great pro day uh, with not only testing well, but he caught the ball well. He ran sure. routes relatively well. Yeah. Uh, so, so he, to me, is the surprise guy. As far as undrafted free agents, uh, you know, as far as guys have the, the just best chance of making rosters, I think if Nick – I've seen Nick McLeod kind of be – considered a late round undrafted guy i think nick could have a chance to stick somewhere especially with the speed that he showed at the pro day and he's a guy that can play some special teams uh he he's a guy that I, I think tommy kramer if he can be healthy could if he is ends up being undrafted he's another guy that's sort of at the bottom of that you know late round undrafted free agent thing i think if ian book doesn't get picked and and you know yeah, again he's a late round guy too i think I ian going. will have a chance at sticking uh with that's, an that's nfl I team because i i think he's he is, and I honestly, I think the best case scenario for Ian Book is to go undrafted. Yeah, because then he my, can pick where he goes. Because then he can pick where he can go. Because look, I, I, and we've talked about this ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's a parent. He's a backup quarterback, but that's okay. Yeah, like you can make one heck of a living being a backup quarterback because you get a spot start here yeah. and there. He's not going to hurt you, right? He's, right. And he's going to be great in the room. He's going to do all those. He checks right. all of those boxes, right? And I think going undrafted is the absolute best case scenario because if he gets drafted in the sixth or seventh round, okay, you got drafted. It might not be the most ideal right. situation because well, they might just be drafting an arm for yeah. training camp. And, and we saw that last year. I mean, the last couple of years, mm-hmm. you know, Alex Bars, the best thing for Alex Bars was that some team in the seventh round didn't take him. Correct. Same thing with Sam Mustafer because they then they to got the- to go sign with Coach Eastan. You got so it. They got to pick where they went. Right. And now they've both started games this past year. Yeah, and exactly. Dante Vaughn got to pick to go to the Chargers because they clearly had established a relationship. He was on the the practice squad all year. Jalen Elliott's another one where the the Lions told him this is talking to a source. The Lions told him before the draft, if you're not that, if you don't get picked, we want you. They said, look, we don't have a lot of picks. Uh, we can't. We're not really in a position where we can ideally draft a safety. This is before the draft. If you're there at the end, we want you. Jalen Elliott signed with the Lions, and he was on their their roster the whole year on their you know on their their practice squad. So clearly, he's a guy that they liked. Sure. So those are always ideal situations, and a lot of times I feel like to your point, Vince, you almost have a better shot at making a team as an undrafted free agent than Completely you do agree. as a sixth, seventh round pick because you can look at the depth chart and you can see where you fit, and you can also scope out relationships mm-hmm. and all, just like you said with Jalen right. Elliott. <laughs> It's just you have more control over your destiny uh, as an undrafted free agent. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty right. of undrafted free agents out there on Ross. Right. I think Javon McKinley is another one that will have a shot to stick. I think if, if again, he's got to go to the right place. <laughs> but if he wants sure. to be in the NFL, you know, we'll see if he does. If he was willing to put in the work, I think he could end up sticking too. Because I think okay. Javon's a guy that also could play special teams. So For sure. That was the one uh, question we had. All right. We had, and we got to give some love. Tommy was the first one in the chat today. So participation uh, ribbon for Tommy. Congratulations. There you go. go. (laughs) Just messy with you, man. Uh, All right. Let's get going. We got some questions. No, absolutely. We're we're starting with Vincent because he's got an amazing name. Um, If the lack of playing time for young receivers continue, do you think it will start to affect recruiting success at the position? All right. So first of all, Vincent, I, I just realized when we saw this question that I forgot to email you back. Sincerest apologies. I will do that as soon as we're done with the show today. Uh, but I, I mean, I it's going to start at some point in time, Vincent. It's going to start. I, I do believe that. I think that when you look at all these teams that are putting freshmen on the field and 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 then especially sophomores, but Notre Dame's not really getting these guys into the rotation until they're juniors and seniors. And then you see a guy like Lawrence Keyes, 
who steps up to the plate when guys are injured as a well, well he would have been in 19 he'd have been a so- true sophomore right redshirt freshman steps up makes a big play against Louisville makes a big play against Georgia then Chris Fink and everybody comes back and he's on the bench the rest of the year basically and then doesn't get a shot that next year because right. you know the veterans are there and you know then you see a grad transfer come in and he doesn't necessarily play all that well he played okay and he just takes that spot so I, I think that those things can affect recruiting if they continue. Now, sure. this is not an, a saying. This is saying this regardless of whether they should play or not. I mean, even if you accept the premise that there are better players <coughs> in front of them, right? And so I'm not trying to rehash the this sure. guy should play or that play. We've we've talked about that a million times. The fact of the matter is, whether they're playing for not playing for the legitimate reasons or not playing because. Right. The, the complaints we've had, the fact is them not playing and it being a consistent thing over and over is going to hurt them. Now, the thing that helps Notre Dame is they can say, hey, look, yes, you're not playing. A lot of guys don't play as freshmen, but Miles Boykin stuck it out. He was a third right. round pick. Chase Claypool stuck it out. He was a second round pick. He was an all rookie player. Sure. You know, so there's there's and, there, and it also helps if you keep right. winning, too. Right. Because right. you can say, look, our formula works event and then parlaying to what you just said. Right will get you on the field, you will end up being an NFL draft pick. Mm-hmm. So they do have that. Colton in there. didn't play much as a freshman. He was a sure. backup in sophomore year, and then third sure. year he gets a shot, and he's a second-round pick. Number one tight end taken in the draft. So right. that's Notre Dame's counter to that. Correct. You, you know, But, again, it just depends on how much is going to happen. You, you know what I'm curious about, Vince? I'm curious about how – the transfer rule is going to impact this more than whether or not Notre Dame's be able to get guys. Cause yeah. I, I can see more guys saying, yeah, I'm going to go. And if I don't get a shot, I, we I'm talked out. to a recruit in Columbus and I'm not going to say who, but he basically said, you know, I'm going to go somewhere going to play me. Cause I'm not sitting for two, three years. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, so like, okay. So you're just going to go somewhere. And if you're not starting by your second year, you're going to transfer. I mean, we're going to see that happen more and more. Oh, and more. You're going to see so, it a lot more. I just, I'm curious to see how that's going to be like free agency, else. honestly. Yeah. And it's going to be very interesting, but uh, Richard has a question here about the offense. He said there was some news out of uh, that offensive coordinator. Tommy Reese is going to change the offense up this year. I don't understand how, since he's going to have a less mobile quarterback. What are your thoughts? Now, let me, I'm going to jump in on this one, Brian, real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, the mobility of the quarterback has nothing to do with changing up the offense, plain and simple. Now, if you're changing up the offense to utilize a mobile quarterback, that's another conversation. But the ways in which that he is that we believe and that we have seen him changing up the offense means more RPOs, more quick game, things of that nature, which has nothing to do with having a mobile quarterback. Now, if they wanted to have some stuff with a mobile quarterback, they've got one on the roster. He's just probably not going to start this year. So well, and I, I also think those other two guys are a lot more mobile than people get credit I agree for. There's different you. types of mobility. There's for running sure. mobility. There's pocket mobility. Uh, you know, Jack Cohn's not the athlete Ian Book was. I guarantee you Jack no, Cohn doesn't run. I, I'll be shocked. I won't guarantee you. I'd be shocked if Jack Cohn next year at Pro Day runs a 4.59 like Ian sure. Book did. I'll be shocked if he has the agility numbers that Ian Book put up. But I would say if you watch his film, he has better pocket presence than Ian Book did. And Let's not forget that Notre Dame didn't exactly call a lot of designed runs for him book. Those were all things all that happened when, yeah. when he broke down. Well, Jack Cohn is going to say, okay, instead of taking off and running, I'm just going to hit the check down. Yeah, he's, you yeah. know, eyes be downfield. Uh, yeah. Right. <clears throat> and both work. And, and you don't sure. have to change the offense because one guy's mobile, one guy's not mobile. But to your point, Vincent, and we have another question down here about the same thing. So uh, John, John Long asks, 
with offensive changes hopefully coming and the promise of more RPOs, any chance of a tempo increase as well. Would love to see some Avery Davis wildcat with tempo. So, you know, we're, we're, we're hearing that. And it's a lot of it's built so around right. what Tommy Reese said. And I don't think Tommy Reese said they're going to change the offense. I think what Tommy Reese said is they're going to adapt the offense to their personnel. And when you look at the personnel that Notre Dame has, it's a lot of Braden Lindsay's and Lawrence Keyes's and, and, and Avery Davis's and players like that that aren't 6'3", 220-pound guys, that aren't you know, 4'6 guys. It's we have guys that need to get the ball in space. Sure. And he talked a lot about – and that's the thing I probably liked hearing the most, Vince, was there was two things Tommy Reese said that I loved hearing. And, and I don't, you know, if people have a lot of questions about it, we can dive into it. But I would like for you and I to kind of do a podcast breaking that down like we did the Marcus Freeman one. But sure. one was the, the his answer to my question. And Tommy Reese kind great of – answer, by the way. Tommy Reese kind of is like a, a – you know, you're right, Vince. is it, He's sort of like a, you know, man after my own heart. You know, he's very long-winded. He gives you very detailed answers. He says a lot, and I love it. I think he's great in press conferences because he's giving you genuine answers. He's talking ball with you. Yeah. And so his answer to, to the, that question that I asked about, you know – Basically, are you studying other teams? Are you seeing kind of – are you watching the game or is it just kind of t- – this is who we are and we're just going to tinker this a little bit? But he said, yeah, we're watching – you know, I'm I'm studying football. I'm and his studying answer football. was, I don't have a family. I got nothing right, else right, to I don't do. have a life, right? Like that's, <laughs> I thought that you know, was great. I, I got to like, talk he, And that. what he meant was he's not married, doesn't have kids. Right. You know, he doesn't have so, other responsibilities. Yeah. Right. And, and I understand I – mean, I'm married, but my wife owns her own business and she works almost as many hours as I do. Uh, and we don't have kids. So yeah, there's a lot more time for me to to go indulge in things that you know you and I've had this conversation how many times since like yeah I can't watch a lot of film you know I got five <laughs> kids I'm yeah. coaching baseball I'm a teacher you know right so I mean I, I love that but then the other one was he kept talking about space we need to we yeah. need to spread teams out space because Smart. we talked about this on the radio last night Vince what what we don't see Notre Dame do Notre Dame did a pretty good job this year in my opinion and they definitely did a good job of it in 2019 when when they had late in the year especially when when Chase Claypool kind of broke out is they're getting better at stretching the field vertically, right? Technically, it's horizontally, but but it's stretching the field for, you know, vertical, you know, north-south kind of thing. A lot of deep balls, play action, stuff like that. What Notre Dame has not done a very good job of in recent seasons is what has made Alabama and Clemson so effective, which is Alabama makes you defend sideline to sideline. And a perfect example is we talked about this, I think, in the last show, Vince, Go watch, and I'm not going to say it because people are not going to watch it. I understand. I'm not going to watch it. But one of the things Alabama did to Notre Dame is a lot of their stuff was that quick stuff to the perimeter. They forced Notre Dame to defend the width of the field, and the Correct. more you spread out, the more chances you your playmakers have of making plays in space. So he talked about those kind of things, and, and part of that's going to be RPOs, but part of that's going to be design screens. Part of that's going to be design quick game, and then I think those things then set up your deep shots. They make your deep shots Absolutely. even more effective because yep. now you have to respect those, or do you just want to let Braden Lindsay keep catching the ball five yards down the field in space? Do you want to keep Avery Davis and Lawrence Keyes? you want to just kept let, keep letting them catch the ball five yards? And, heck, Notre Dame's got a 240-plus pound tight end that can make people miss in space. Sure. So those are the things I like to see, and, and I don't think any of that requires a mobile quarterback. And, again, Go watch Alabama last year, and you can watch every game except the Rose Bowl. What you'll find is Mac Jones was negative yards rushing going into the playoff. You don't need a mobile quarterback to run RPOs. Correct. I'll say it again. The R in RPOs <clears throat> does not refer to the quarterback running. It right. can if you have it that can. guy. Yeah, you, but if it you have doesn't. that option. It but is it, a called yeah. 
run play. So you're running inside zone. You're running buck sweep. You're running outside zone. You're running, you know, G wrap. You're running the guard tackle counter. Whatever it is, you're calling a run play. You either execute the run play, which requires a handoff to the running back, right, or you're pulling it and throwing it, whether it's at the snap or after you've carried out your fake and you've read a defender post snap. Sure. It could be a pre or a post snap read. Now, some teams, if they have a mobile quarterback, well, it's almost like a triple option. You know, Correct. you can do a read zone and things like that. And and but it doesn't have to be. So mobility of the quarterback is completely irrelevant when it comes to the overall idea of changing your offense. Now, specifically to Richard's point, there are certain concepts you're not going to adopt or at least not do a lot if you don't have a mobile quarterback. You're not going to run power read a whole lot with Drew Pine or Jack Cohn. You're just not. You can run read zone with them, especially in third and short, because they're both athletic enough to where if you crash the backside, they can pull it and run for five yards on third and three. And that's what you need. Yeah, and, right. and that's all you need. So you will see some of that. And those things are smart to do. And, you know, you incorporate that with RPOs. Right. It's, right. It's, a, it's also a situation where, you know, one guy's unblocked. So that's one less guy that you have to move. You know what I mean? Right. And. And when what you're talking about, when it's almost that triple option look, you're not you're not blocking two guys, so it's a double read because right. it's a read on whether to pass or run, and then it's a read on who's running. So you got to have a pretty, right. you have to have a quick thinking quarterback. Which right, it's not I think Notre Dame has a lot. I think they have that in space. I think that's the big. Yeah, the, the, I agree the with you. We see a quarterback this year, so we're going to see a lot more. I agree. Getting the ball out quickly, throwing on time. A perfect example. We saw something from the film yesterday, and I, I said on Twitter that that was my favorite practice film. And e- even though they didn't have pads, on was my favorite practice film just because of the some of the things that we saw in it. But one of the things we saw in it was Jack Cohn hitting Kyron Williams on a corner route. I think it was Jack Cohn. might have been Drew Pine. Actually, might have, I think it was Drew Pine now that I think about it. But hit him on a corner route. Now, the thing I liked about it is Kyron Williams wasn't in the screen at stat, which meant he wasn't playing running back. Number 25 was a running back. That would be Chris Tyree. Kyron Williams caught the pass, which is, guess what? Two running back offense. Amazing. Uh, the thing I loved about it was he caught the ball and he was still several yards away from the sideline. How often did we see Ian Book throw a corner route that a guy caught and had room to work? It usually right. was catching it and he was at and the sideline. out of bounds, yeah, right. Because of the timing and anticipation. Sure. So, the, And we that was even true in practice. Right. So those are the things I think we're going to see, and those are the changes, and that's also partly adapting to quarterbacks that are just better processors of Correct. The offense, and I don't mean processes of knowing the offense, but just some guys can know the offense like it's the back of their hand. But when it comes to going through the reads and doing those things, it's a different story. That's why some guys are way better coaches than they are. They were players. (laughs) (laughs) Throwing it out there. All right. Uh, yes, Vince. <laughs> I thought you had a question. No, no, that was me. Calling You're the host, out. dude. You don't I, have to raise your hand. I was calling myself out. I was a much better coach than a player. All right. Uh, Dylan has a quick question. He says he apologizes. It's already been talked about, but has Jordan Johnson missed a few practices this spring? Yeah, I I didn't know. I mean, I, Brian Kelly said that. I had no idea. Yeah. I still don't know what the reason is. He's back right. and practicing healthy. I don't know if it was – I don't know what it was really related to. I don't know if it was an injury or right. what. So I'm not even going to venture to to guess that until somebody tells me what it was. And Brian Kelly hasn't mentioned it. And I reached out to a couple people today, and they said the same thing. Yeah, I had no idea he had missed practice until Brian Kelly said something. <laughs> so. There you go. All right, Tommy's got a good question about the O-line here. At what point does the O-line concern become a serious issue? How – is it comparing to several years ago when it took several weeks into the season to sort it out? Now, I will say 
it's way too early to throw up the red flags because mm -hmm. there's still guys moving from position to position, trying to figure out who needs to go where and, and the rep situation. I'm not going to be worried about it until it depends on what we see in the fall. Right. So we're going to get to the fall before I even think about worrying about it. And then I need to see five guys consistently and how they're doing, you know what I mean? In practice. And that's again, if we get our eyes on practice, right? So, could it bleed into the season? Absolutely, it could. Yeah. They may not be 100% set by the time they get to the season just because there's going to be so much movement and so many new spots, right? There's going to be five new starters, essentially, because, you know, Jared Patterson isn't going to be starting at center. Mm -hmm. So there's five new starters. And what they think coming out of fall camp being their best five may not be the case after a couple of games. Right. So mm -hmm. it could go into the season. Um, I still wouldn't put up a red flag unless they are just truly struggling. That That's me. Yeah. Um, what do you, what, what say you, sir? You know, Vince, I think if you'd have asked me this a week ago, I would have said the same thing. I would have said, Hey, you know, I'm not worrying a whole lot, but the fact that they're talking about starting two, two freshmen. Yeah. And I think part of the reason they're going to start it is they're, very talented, or at least sure. that's what Kelly's saying. I'm still skeptical of that that actually happening. But part of the reason that it's happening is because they spent so much time moving those guys around. Who are the two guys that did not change positions? It's Rocco Spindler and as know, if they're talking about starting in, yeah, exactly. in, in uh, Blake Fisher. Now Blake right. Fisher moved right and left tackle, and then Spindler's played right and left guard. But that's different than playing center one series and then you know one day and then guard the next. And I think as I my big concern that I said was I understand doing the rotation stuff through five, six, seven practices, but I think they've still doing too much of it to where now guys like Dylan Gibbons and, and, and uh, Andrew Christophic and Quinn Carroll aren't getting enough work at one spot to get as comfortable. And, and I think that's problematic for me. Right. And so I'm already a little bit concerned. And, and I, and I think Tommy's talking about 2014. If you remember they had, I think Nick Martin was at center and, and yeah, Dil uh, Christian Lombard started off, I believe, as a right. guard, and, and Steve Elmer started off a tackle, and then they flipped those two at one point in time during the season because we all learned early on you know, that Elmer wasn't a tackle, and Coach Eastan wanted to see if he could make him a tackle, and he just wasn't a tackle. And then Matt Haggerty sure. ends up taking over at center, and Nick Martin moves out to guard, and you know, and, and, you, and it hurt the offense. And it wasn't until late, late in the season when the, the old line started really playing at a higher level. So you know, I think that that to me is I'm a little bit more concerned by the end of spring than I thought I was going to be. And yes, those guys are incredibly talented players, but I'm sorry. I do not feel great about an offensive line that's going to be that could potentially be starting and two true freshmen on the left side, too. Which Correct. I, Makes that, even less sense. I think that's what worries me the most is like if, if two freshmen are your two best. Right. Why are you putting them at the most critical positions? And side by side. like Side who, by side, yes. So, Agreed. you know, put a veteran by them so the veterans can right. handle the Split communication and the and the talking and the checks. Hey, we, we're working to this guy or whatever if, the yeah. case may be. If those are your two best guys, then Rocco Spindler is your left guard. Jarrett Patterson is your left tackle. And you're going to put Tosh Baker at right tackle. Mm -hmm. And you you put Josh Lugg at right guard. That, I mean, you, so you're putting them next to two guys that have a bunch of starts under their belts. Mm -hmm. I would feel much more comfortable with that scenario than having them both together. Because then you've got Tosh Baker, and the only person he's got next to him is a kid that was in high school a month ago. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I have a huge problem with that. You know what I mean? Like, right. maybe I'm wrong, and maybe they're just blowing everybody away. But right. 
I think that says more about the rest of the depth chart than it does about those guys. Yeah, but I mean, true, but at the same time, again, a guy like Andrew Kostovic is not experienced enough to be able to move all around all spring and expect him to get comfortable somewhere. No, that's a good point. You know, and and that's the other thing is, you know, has Dylan Gibbons, even though he's a fifth-year senior, has he played enough football to be able to go back and forth from center to guard and win a job? Uh, so I think those are those sure. are my things. Is is I think you, I said I said this before. There comes a point in time where you do it too long, and I'm hoping that that doesn't happen. And and look, and it's just the spring. There's going to be 20 plus practices in the fall. Somebody could step up. Somebody that sure. you know when they start to get guys I'm into one position. Have, yeah, I'm hoping that they have right. a. That's going to be the big thing for me is I want to I want to yeah. stop with all the moving dudes around by the time right. we get to fall camp. That yeah, you just absolutely. let guys sit in their spots, and then hey, look. And if if Christophic and and, and uh, Gibbons. Dylan Gibbons and Carol are all playing, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Playing guard and they're getting the same reps and Brocco Spindler just flat beats them out. Cool. So be it. But the, but still don't put those two dudes side right. by side. Yes, agreed. You know, put put Jer- if you're going to play Jarrett Patterson at guard, then put him beside between the center and and uh, uh, and, and Blake Fisher, and then put Quinn uh, Rocco on the other side where he's between Zeke Carell and Josh Lug. So they at least both have a veteran beside them. Right. I just uh, I get a little or put them both on the right side. Right, right, right <laughs> you right. know, and then put Tosh Baker at left tackle and with Jared Patterson or whatever. I mean, yeah, line. yeah, that, that scares you know what out of me. Yeah, Frank, Ag- agree. But agree. Anyway. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, D-Rock, D-Rock, your thoughts on the new NCAA rules for the upcoming season must go for two in the second overtime, third overtime, is a two-point shootout. Now, I didn't hear about that last part. No. Um, so I'm assuming you, it's just two-point plays? Like, mm-hmm. and it just do they go back and forth? Is that what, what that is, basically? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I have no problem going for two in the second overtime. I don't, okay, that makes it more exciting. 
the overtime rules are dumb anyway. So mm-hmm. it might as well. It's it's to get the fans excited and not to have ties. So if we're going to go for two, great. It probably shortens the game a little bit, uh, makes it more exciting. Fine, I'm okay yeah. with it. The two point shootout seems a little strange to me. I don't yeah. know if I'm well, they board. already have that, but it's after like the fifth overtime. Oh, so I'm, now so they're just basically that. saying. Okay. First overtime is normal. Second overtime, you have to go for two, and then after that, it's. I still think the whole. I still think the whole premise is stupid. I think they're changing the wrong thing about the overtime. I love the the format of college football overtime, and I don't understand why everybody's always looking at. Let's shorten games. Why don't why? you love watching football? Why? I want to see as much yeah. football as I can. Right. It's one thing if we're going to shorten a game because we have eighty seven thousand minutes of commercials. That I'm cool with. But why are you actually trying to shorten the actual playing time? Right. Uh, number one. But number two, I think the easiest, and I've said this for years, Vince, the easiest fix is start at the 40. That way you at least have to get a first down for your kicker in to really to be in a comfortable goal. position. You right. have that's the thing, is like you you could you could start at the 25, and if you have a good kicker, you could lose two yards and still be in field goal range. That seems right. dumb to me. Start right. at the 40. You know, because how many teams have a kicker where you could lose, you know, not gain a single yard and you're nailing a 58 yard field goal? True. That's going to be a little bit tougher for most teams. So start at the 40 and make them at least get a, a, a first down to really be in field goal range because then you're going to see teams scoring less and you're going to see overtimes not go as long and it's not as easy to score as it is now. I mean, especially when you have good teams, you get in overtime and it's just like, well, you. You're both within 25 yards. You're already basically in your red zone offense and your red zone defense, and you're right. you're yeah. you know you're in scoring position. So, I think the alternating two point conversion things is stupid. Uh, I would like to see them do it where they you know start off at the 40, and maybe then you 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 maybe move it up five yards every time to eventually you know fifth overturn. Sure. But I think it's dumb. I would like to see them move the move the start back. I think that is the the right way to do it. But it is the NCAA. And they really hardly ever make things where I'm like, wow, that was a great decision. That was really smart. That made a lot of sense. They're actually trying to make the game better. They don't <laughs> no, do that. No. Uh, Jason's got a recruiting uh, comment, really, more than anything yeah. else. Uh, love the early 24 offer to Anthony Specca, Pittsburgh Central Catholic, same school mm-hmm. as the Heinish brothers. That, yep. First of all, let me just comment on how crazy it is. He's a, a flipping freshman. freshman. A freshman, right, yeah. because – my son is an eighth grader, and I've I've known since the day he was born. He's a class yeah. of twenty five, right. and the fact that a twenty four is getting an offer from Notre Dame, this kid can't even drive yet, blows my mind. But have you have you seen any of his film, Brian? Yeah. Do you know anything yeah. about? Him? He looks like a freshman. He's skinny right. and he's got to fill out. But you know, for a young kid, he's very instinctive. He's got okay. a really nice frame. He, I mean, he looks to be six two, six three at least on wow. film. He's him. got a skinny freshman body, but sure. he moves well. Uh, he's going to get more explosive, you know, but the thing I like about him now, Vince, is he's got fluid. He's fluid. He moves, you know, he gets in and out, has power for a freshman. You yes. know, again, that's what, that's the whole thing. Is, yeah. You got to, everything is relative to, if you watch his film and then you go watch Junior Cho with Alamacus Junior film, you're going to be like, this kid ain't even close. Well, yeah, of course not. He's a freaking freshman, you know. Right. He's a good player. And, and they've already offered a really good 2023 linebacker from Indiana named Drake Bowen. So, they're getting a, a head start on those, but yeah, I, I like. I, I have no problem with the offer, Jason, and I would. I bet you a million dollars that. Well, no, I probably shouldn't do that because then they may come calling and, and want that. But I, I'd be willing to bet you a steak dinner that it's not really a situation where he's going to commit tomorrow, or they would take a right. commitment tomorrow because it is so right. early. But get in there. I mean, especially if you think this kid's going to blow up. And watching his film, he has the tools that you think. And in two years, this kid could be something special, and he'd still only be a junior. Unbelievable. 
Apparently Dylan's headed to the draft. Nice. Uh, I've Ellis. never been. Have you ever been to a draft, Vince? Oh, I've never York. been to a draft. I've never been to New York before. Yeah. So I guess the best one would have been when it was in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, but no, I have never we been. We should to do draft. that one of these years. We should we should have I'm like down. draft coverage from the location. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I'm down. I'm down. Let's do it. All right. Let's see here. Uh, Christopher, was Steve Angeli's ESPN ranking a surprise to you? Yeah, it was simply because I don't know what it's being based off of. You know, I, I, they had was him as a good or bad? oh, he had a big, huge jump. I think he's oh, okay. ranked like 129th in the country now. And oh, I mean, wow. he played six wow. games of high school football. He threw like nine touchdowns. Got, is that because he committed to Notre Dame? Do you think that's part I, of it? I don't think so. I, I don't know if he committed to their All Star game. Maybe that's okay. it, or they're trying to get him to commit to their All Star game. I don't okay. get it, we'll but it's good end. for Notre Dame. Look, for it's sure. great for Notre Dame. Look, yeah. I have my opinion of Steve Angeli. I'm not as high on him as others. There's some tools to work with, right? So I'm not going to bang on Steve Angeli. Uh, sure. He's a good player, good kid, recruiting his butt off. I mean, he's recruiting his butt off for Notre Dame right now. But I'll say this. It's great for Notre Dame. You want your quarterback commit to be ranked high because then and he plays at a big program. He's now ranked higher. Uh, I think Rivals has him as a four-star. I, I won't be shocked if Rivals eventually jumps him into their top 250. That's good for Notre Dame because now whether recruits are like, hey, you know right, what, this kid's going to be a – yeah, yeah, Under Armour All-American, and he's ranked as a top 150 recruit, or whatever the case may be. You're going to want to play with that guy. Then that 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 certainly helps Notre Dame. So sure. it was a surprise, but it was a good surprise because that there's nothing bad that can come out of that for Notre Dame. I hear you. All right, next question, Jay. Hearing great things about Coach Freeman and defensive tackle Lucas, and making a huge impression on his parents over recent Zoom calls. Yeah. Uh, a huge want in this cycle, and Dylan. Follows that up with, that would be huge. Yeah. I've been talking about Anthony Lucas to Notre Dame for a while. I, I have said for over a month that Notre Dame has a, a much better shot with this kid than a lot of people think. And I understand why people are skeptical because we've seen Notre Dame look like they're in good shape with a kid from Arizona in the past, and then he ends up they end up fading. But, you know, they've also got some kids from Arizona. Tosh Baker's from Arizona. Cole Luke was from Arizona. So they've gotten some kids from there. But I just I've always felt like it. and when you when you when you talk to people that know Anthony Lucas, you you hear about his family, you get the impression that that's a that's a group of people that are going to be more attracted to the Notre Dame message about Notre Dame than some other top recruits, you know, and yes, the football piece is important and that and being in the playoff to the last three years has helps a lot. But some kids, as Marcus Freeman said the other day, some kids are just more receptive to that than others. The kids that, and this is what I, the best part about what he said was the kids that aren't, we got to convince them to be so. That right. was the best that, part about absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's not like, oh, let's just go find the Notre Dame right. kids. No, let's convince right. some kids that they need to be Notre Dame Correct. kids. And I, and I, that, when you paint yourself into that corner, oh, that's that what really amazing. bothered me. And, and there's been too many coaches in the past. That have done that. Well, he's not a Notre Dame guy. He's not an right. RTG or whatever the the. Or we're going to actually have to work really hard to get that guy. Right, right, right. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but so yeah, I, I loved it. But no, I mean, yeah. and look, Mike Elson has done a great job with Anthony Lucas, and now this is the whole thing about Elston. With we saw it with Tyson Ford, we saw it with Aiden Gabera, where he put in a lot of the work to get Notre Dame into the mix. And then along comes Marcus Freeman. And that's not saying, oh, Marcus Freeman's a wizard and Mike Elson can't close. No, that's what every other school does. Exactly. For top recruits. It's not just the D-line coach. It's the coordinator, the head coach. Now it's just Notre Dame's kind of catching up Mm. and and starting to get more of a team effort. And and to me, it's it's working great. It's why they're in position to possibly have 
their best recruiting class since 2013 with some of the guys that are on the board. They got to close, but Anthony Lucas is a key part of that. You know, we did that dream class, Vince, and Anthony Lucas was absolutely one of them. But I've said, look, if there's five recruits that you have to get in this class, Zabion Bradshaw's one. I talked about that the other day. Anthony Lucas is another. He is a he is a gap closer, in my opinion. No doubt about it. Especially right. in this defense, because he can play three technique at an elite level and he can line up and play five technique at sure. an elite level in sure. a three down look. And guys like that, Vince, are those are muskets. A six five two hundred like guy that, that can yeah. also rush off the edge. Yeah. Yes, Absolutely. please. <laughs> great uh shannon's got a fun question um guys what's the one notre dame loss that still haunts you to me it's probably the 93 bc game or the 05 usc hmm. game so do you want to start or do you want me to start i've got it i've got this you're, you're the host buddy go ahead and kick I, it off for me personally it's the 05 usc game that was the second year that i was covering notre dame and i was on the field for the last you know the Notre Dame allows – they used to anyway uh, – allows last five minutes, media can go down on the field, stand on the sidelines. That way you kind of get a head start to get to the media room, whatever. And I'm on the sideline uh, for the, the long pass, right, the fourth oh. down pass, and then that whole sequence down there. I'm standing at about the 10-yard line on that end of the field on the opposite side of where Matt Leinert fumbled because he mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm on the opposite side. So I'm on Notre Dame sideline. Everybody in the stadium thinks that the clock ticks down, right? I'm on the field. I, you know, I'm, I've got the fanboy hat on. Like I am no longer media in my head. I'm, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm on the field. And then of course I hear Mike Collins come on the uh, PA and tell everybody, Hey, the game's not over. You got to get back on the sideline. And then they run that last play. And I see Reggie Bush push Matt Leinard in, blah, 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 blah. We all know how it ends. There are two games that I I have gone from extreme excitement and exhilaration to just heartbreak within, what, 10 seconds? Mm -hmm. I mean, that one and then the game um, up at Michigan with Denard Robinson. Oh, the one they blew a 24-7 lead? That That was back in 2011. That one. I was up at – big house for that one on the field again and they blew it and again extreme exhilaration to absolute despair when they hit that wheel route it's just like oh man it goes those were the two games for me that ripped my heart out the year before the michigan state one where they were in overtime yeah and uh Oh, you the, know, the, they, they had the big tackle for loss, and it was like fourth and 87 in overtime, and they ran the freaking little Giants. That one was as far as being at the game and deflating. Yeah. There's two games, Shannon, for me that fit that mold. BC 93 is one. And I, Vince, you were probably just a tad too young for that one. Um, that game crushed me because I think Notre Dame wins the national championship that year. I think they beat Nebraska. I think they win the national championship that year. And, and who knows what happens after that. Sure. The other one for me is much more recent. Uh, and, and that's the Miami game in 2017. Oh, that was horrible. I truly believe that that was a Notre Dame team that had an opportunity to do damage in the postseason because I feel like the reason they looked like they did down the stretch was because of the just the uh, the the energy sapped out of your season when you lost to Miami. The way that they lost. Yes, it. yes. Oh. I really I really believe <clears throat> that if Brandon Wimbush hits that hits that post route to Equinemia St. Brown that Notre Dame wins that game comfortably. That was not a good Miami team. We saw it again the next week against Pitt. 
Right. They were barely beating mediocre teams. Notre Dame just went – that was more about Notre Dame laying an egg, just Absolutely. like the Michigan game in 2019 than it was Miami was really good. And, and you know, no, Notre Dame's 4-8 and eight team in 2016 beat a better Miami team, in my opinion, than that 2017 Miami team. Because, again, you go look at their record, they were they were scraping, scraping by with against sure. mediocre teams. I, I They would have beat Stanford, in my opinion, a couple weeks later. Because they they still were back, they had a lead against Stanford in the fourth quarter, and and really were just going through the motions. I mean that that team had just lost all its confidence. Brandon Wimbush had lost all his confidence, and he was short hopping, you know, look look screens, you know. And but if he hits that post route, he doesn't lose his confidence. Remember, this is the thing that's crazy. Brandon Wimbush was coming off the best game of his career a week before against Wake Forest. They had over seven hundred yards of offense. He threw for almost 300 yards, rushed for over 100 yards, and didn't play most of the fourth quarter yeah. in that game because he hurt his hand. And and they would have beat Stanford, and if they would have beat Stanford and Miami, they're in the playoff. And one of the teams that was in the playoff that year was Georgia. We saw how Notre Dame stacked up against Georgia, and, right. and that was in the second game of the Mike Elko Chip Long era. You know, and, and so I just feel like that team could have gone that, – and that also was probably the worst – um, the worst Bama team to win a title. That was an incredibly beatable Bama team, if you remember that year correctly, Vince. That was that team that needed overtime to beat Georgia. Uh, you know, J- Jalen uh, Hurts got hurt, came out of the game. You know, I, I look at that. That and here's the thing too: Bama's probably not even the playoff that year. You know what I mean? Like that was a very mediocre Clemson team. That was the Kelly Bryant Clemson team. Oh, yeah. Notre Dame absolutely could have beat that Clemson team. I mean, they they lost to Bama 24 to 6, and that was not a great Bama team. Uh, and Bama only got in because Notre Dame got beat. Georgia, if you remember that year, Georgia won the SEC. They beat Auburn in the SEC title. Alabama only got in because Notre Dame got knocked out. Yeah. So I just felt like that was one of their best chances to win a national championship. Was was that team and that that year? as far as in the the post-2016 team. Their best roster was 2015, but that team wasn't going to win a title because the, they had Brian McGorder running the defense. That wasn't going to happen. Uh, so that's that's why I go to that Miami game. I really believe that, that 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 was just one of those weird years where there was no powerhouse, Vince. There was no great power in college football that year. Clemson was down. Alabama was down. Georgia was good, but Georgia was more about talent than they were great coaching. They just had great players. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, and, and – you know, Oklahoma probably was was they had they that team was really good. I think if whoever won the Georgia Oklahoma game was going to win the national title. To me, that was the title game that year because you know Bama, you know Clemson was an overrated number one seed. I still don't understand how Clemson was the number one seed having lost to Syracuse, who was freaking four and eight that year. Um, but you know, like I said, it was a down year. And I would have put that Notre Dame team, a confident 2017 Notre Dame team, I'd have put up with anybody that season. So that's why that 2017 Miami game still just like hit that post route. And we're we're having a different conversation about Notre Dame's future and present. All right, Lucas, jumping in here. How long do you see Coach Freeman staying at Notre Dame? And do you think there was an agreement between Coach Kelly and Freeman on how long he would stay during the interview process? Now, absolutely that that was brought up there there's mm-hmm. no question because i i would say that and i don't obviously i don't know this for sure but i would say a minimum of two years he's got that's be- what i was told i was okay. told that coach freeman committed to two years now there's always exceptions 
Sure. You know, if Ohio State, you know, if Ryan Day leaves for the NFL and Ohio State comes calling, no one's going to be pissed at Marcus Freeman. For, I'm sorry I keep saying that. I'm, I'm a little fired up today. I apologize. No one's going to be upset with Marcus Freeman for, you know, taking Ohio State job, right? I mean, so there's always reason. But, you know, my understanding is, is that Marcus Freeman committed to at least two years from Notre Dame. So he, he, I, barring something unforeseen, I think he'll be here at least for the 2022 season. And, and I honestly think that Marcus Freeman, to me, he, he doesn't, you got to look at somebody's actions, right? Marcus Freeman looks at the Notre Dame roster and he sees a pretty talented depth chart the next couple of years. If he's here to just kind of be here for a year or two and bounce, I don't think he's working on the recruiting trail like he I is. That's I just exactly don't. Now, that doesn't mean he won't leave in two years, sure. but he he's but recruiting right like I, I, someone that's trying to build something. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he had – look, if you think Marcus Freeman's a smart football coach and if you think smart Marcus Freeman is a smart human being, and I think both of those things are true, he looks at Brian Kelly's age. He looks at how long Brian Kelly's been at Notre Dame. He looks at the other coaches on the staff and says, you know what, if I do what I got to do and we win some games – I got a shot. This here. could be my next job. Yeah, right. So, so I, I, two, at least two years is what I expect him to be, barring something completely unforeseen happening. I think I he'll be here for a, for a, at least two years. Brian ha- has a question here with the young offensive line. Is it harder to pass block or run block? I think that's interesting because for me, I don't know that it has anything to do with age. Like, it, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's more of an individual. Like some guys are just built to well, run block. I, I think it's to your point, Vince. And let yeah. me say this because I think if I say this, you're going to agree with me. Okay. It's relative to your age, depending on what you were about to say, which is what are your strengths? So right. for for Tosh Baker, I think it's going to be a little bit more challenging run blocking. For Rocco Spindler, I think it's going to be a little bit more challenging pass blocking. Pass blocking. Yeah. Right. Because that makes sense. Because what what right. are your strengths? Right. You know, and we saw that with Ronnie Stanley, young early in his career, where he wasn't a great run blocker early on, and sometimes he'd get so focused on run blocking that it would then hurt his pass blocking because he was he wasn't his natural, he very natural pass blocker. So, yeah, to answer your question, I think it depends on to Vince. I'm sorry, you, you no. were going to say something, but I I was just going to tie in the inexperienced yeah. part of it. No, that's exactly what I was going to say as well. Um. Another Marcus Freeman question from Domer, Texas 22. We'll go with that. Mm-hmm. How likely is it that Marcus Freeman's comments about outworking everybody on the recruiting trail will light a fire under the offensive staff? I think it's all combined. I, 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 I look, coaches are competitive. They don't want to be outworked. They are, you know, they don't want to be outshined, I guess, to a degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm hoping that it rubs off, obviously, but we'll see. I mean, I, I there's always the possibility. Um, but I, I still love Marcus Freeman's comments. Yeah. I, I I think that Tommy Reese is already kind of there. Yeah. I just don't know if Tommy Reese is surrounded by enough other guys sure. that, that are, are grinders. Yeah. And I, I think defensively, the thing that's working for the defense right now, and I've said this before, not every great coach, not every great recruiter is a coach who actually likes recruiting. They just understand they have to do it. And it's a part of what they want to do. And so they're, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to be great at it. Some guys love recruiting. I genuinely believe that Marcus Freeman and Mike Mickens and Mike Elson really like recruiting. Right. I think they be, enjoy yeah. building relationships. I think they enjoy um, selling Notre Dame. I, I think all that stuff is true, and that's partly what makes them great. I don't think there's a – I think there's a few coaches on the offense, and I'm not talking about Tommy Reese, 
because I think Tommy Reese is absolutely putting in work. Tommy Reese doesn't have the pedigree in, in the resume that Marcus Freeman has. That's something. I mean, Marcus Freeman's 34, right? He's been a defensive coordinator for several years. He was a big name when Notre Dame hired him. Tommy Reese is only 20, what, 29 now? You know, he's still building it. In that neighborhood, but yeah. From a work standpoint, Tommy's putting in the work, but Marcus Freeman putting in the work, he doesn't get Tyson Ford to commit to Notre Dame if Mike Elson hadn't already laid the foundation, right? Like, can we all understand that? Like, Tyson, they, they weren't ninth for Tyson Ford, and he hadn't, he'd eliminated them. And then all of a sudden, Marcus Freeman comes in, and four days later, he commits to Notre Dame because of Marcus Freeman's wizardry. No, Mike Elson had laid that foundation, got Notre Dame to the, to the cusp. And he's going against Oklahoma, who's throwing everybody at Tyson Ford, head coach, D coordinator, D line coach, everybody against Mike Elston. Well, then along comes Marcus Freeman. And, and the reason I'm saying nobody, because Tyson Ford admitted after committing to Notre Dame, he'd never talked to Brian Kelly before. Right. Now, that I think has since been rectified. And we've talked about how well Coach Kelly's doing. But at the time, that wasn't the case. Without the assistance laying the groundwork, the coordinator can't close. That, that's the fact. So Tommy Reese can get in late with Tyler Morris and get in late with Caleb Brown and these types of players and, and try to do something. But if the, if the receivers coach hasn't put in the work leading up to that, then Tommy's not going to close. So that's the difference between offense and defense. Sure. It's, yes, the coordinator's doing a great job, but the assistants are the one, you know, getting them to that finish line. And then it's Coach Freeman that's pushing them over the edge. Right. And that's the thing that's not happening as much on offense. And that's the thing that has to change. We're seeing – I'm seeing issues at tight end recruiting. I'm seeing issues with running back recruiting to a degree. We're definitely you know, issues with receiver recruiting. So I think those things have to be addressed, and there's only one person that can address that and fix that, and that's the big guy in the big office. Yeah, and that right. would not be God. That would be Brian Kelly. We were talking about sure we're talking about the right big guy. Right. <laughs> right. I don't think God's going to be changing their recruiting profiles. Anyway, uh, Christopher – we were talking about the draft earlier and we were talking about how it's better to be an undrafted free agent than get drafted in the sixth or seventh round. He said, why not make the draft five rounds? Because teams want control. And I mean, teams that, need to be able to fill out their rosters. That, that too. Right. So that's why. I mean, the draft used to be – how how many rounds of the draft used to be? It used to be a bunch. It was like 15. In, yeah, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it up right now. This, um, it, Yeah, it used to be a ton and more. And then it got rounds. down to like nine. Yeah. Right? And so I'm going to go back to like 1984. In 1984, there were 12 rounds. Okay. Um, 1974, there were 17 rounds. I mean, that's, that's a lot of flipping rounds. 1964, yeah. there were 20 rounds. There you go. Now, again, back then, there was only 14 teams. So, like, in, 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 in 1964, the last pick of the draft in the 20th round was the 280th pick. In 2014, the last pick was 256 in round seven because you have 32 what? teams plus there's all the compens compensatory, com picks. compensatory yeah. picks yeah. and all that right, other right, kind right, of right. stuff. So, um, you know, the reason you don't make it five rounds is because teams have to, you know, number one, teams need draft capital to be able to make trades. Uh, but number two, teams need to be able to fill out their rosters. You know, and, yeah. and that's the thing about like the Lions. The Lions weren't in a position to draft a safety because – they had other needs to fill out their roster. And and that's the reason you have it is a little bit longer. I think I think seven's kind of the sweet spot. Yeah. I, I think two less, too few rounds is can hurt you. 
and there's no need to me to add more rounds. I think seven's a nice sweet spot for the draft. I kind of like the way the coverage is. You got the first round is day one. You got two and three on day two, and then you got four, five. I mean, yeah. and then you've got the rest. So I did kind of like when it was all on Saturday, like one day or two days, sure. because then I had an excuse not to do anything else that day. Or now it's like, well, the draft's yeah. not till seven o'clock, so yeah. I, I guess I got to go mow the lawn. You know, I'll at two. Fly in my house, so. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Brandon has an interesting question here, and you might have a better idea. I've been on some unofficials with some kids before, but never mm-hmm. on an official. Uh, what does an official visit entail at Notre Dame? What do they plan for the prospects? Is it an individual or a group thing? And do you know anything specifically that Notre Dame does or has planned for their official visits? Okay, so it's both. As far as the individual group thing, there's a little bit of both. Yep. So if you're on if you're on an official visit with like 10 other players, there's things you're going to do as an entire group. There's things sure. you're going to do where you get broken down into your position group. You know, So if there's three corners on campus, they're going to sit down with Coach Mickens, maybe watch some film. Um, things that they do on campus during official visits. Obviously, there's the fun stuff, spending time with players, going out on the town, things like that. Uh, there's admissions meetings, academic meetings. Correct. Notre Dame goes over sort of how the – and this is a lot of times for the parents and coaches who are in attendance that are on the officials with players. Hey, here's how our, our, our academic support operation works. Here's how we help students. Here's how we do classes. Here's questions about majors and all those types of things. And Adam Sargent, his staff – do a great job with those presentations when kids are on campus. They'll have presentations by the medical staff, the strength conditioning staff. They'll all do different presentations. Uh, They take tours of campus. They'll meet with students. A lot of times you'll have them kind of meet with – and I used to do this when I was a recruiting coordinator. I thought this was very important is is we would have player panels where we'd allow our players to kind of sit in a room with the recruits and their parents, and and we would leave. Coaches would leave, and they'd ask them questions. Now, of course – if you're not a stupid coach, you make sure you're getting the right players in that room. Not Absolutely. the kid that's been suspended three times. Hey, yeah. you know, Absolutely. You parents. Certain guys um, you work with on that. Yeah. Right, right. Wow. But those are the things they do. And then, of course, you'll meet with, I mean, you. It's it's. there's a lot of detail. But then there's, there's time spent sitting down spending time watching film. They'll do one-on-one meetings with Coach Kelly. They'll do one-on-one meetings with their co- the coordinator on that side of the ball. They'll do – usually you try to make some one-on-one time. Sometimes it could be just sitting down with a kid while you're eating at the cafeteria. You know, the, the position coach may go over there and eat with the kid or whatever the case may be. So the, the hard part is when you have 10, 11, 12 guys on campus, making sure you're making enough individual time for each player can be a challenge. That's something Notre Dame used to really struggle with. But since guys like Aaron Kearney and some of those, you know, they've expanded the back office, that's gotten a lot better. It's much more organized, much more detailed, and there's much more structure to it. Uh, in regards to making sure that all the coaches know, he, you're, here's here's where we're making sure we're spending enough time with each kid. And then also, sometimes it's like, yeah, we're going to spend time with all 10 kids, but those two over there, <laughs> we got to get those two over there. No, yeah. and, 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 you, and you make sure that you let it be known. Okay. D-Rock, Brian, listened in yesterday to the Mark Rogers program uh, with you as a guest analyst topic, Independence for Notre Dame. Everyone, find the time to listen to that specific show. Great job, Brian. I don't know if you want to give a little synopsis there, or you just want everybody to go listen yeah, to Yeah, that was an interview I did with Mark Rogers a couple weeks ago. He's been kind of taking that interview and breaking it up into little uh, bits and okay. putting it out. But we talked about one um, about why Notre Dame is better off being independent and why this nonsense of people saying, well, you know, Notre Dame thinks they're this, that, and the other. And I explained, like, look, in 1988, Notre Dame was one of, like, 30 independent teams. Notre Dame didn't change. Everybody else changed. Everybody else felt that they needed to go to join a conference to make money. 
And now they're mad that Notre Dame was able to say, well, we don't need to do that because we are different. We are unique and special, and we can have our own TV contract. We can still get a full schedule without being in a conference. We don't need the ACC to make money. Uh, so that was basically talking about that. So just explaining why I thought that it made a lot of sense for Notre Dame to be independent. I think eventually Notre Dame will join a conference, unfortunately, but I kind of like the idea of, of being independent. And I think if Notre Dame is going to join a conference, they need to swing as much weight as possible to make sure that the conference is set up in a way that is advantageous to them, which means make sure you're getting in the right division. Don't join the ACC and get put in a division with Florida State and Clemson, you know, try to get in the other one, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, make sure that it, you try to get it to where they only play eight regular season games. So that way you still have more room to, to do your things out of conference. So uh, th- that's what we talked about. But yeah, look it up. Mark does a really good job. Uh, he, he puts on a really good show and I've been on guests on there a couple of times, but uh, he's broken up different segments of the of the one interview that we did. Shane is asking about in-state recruiting. Seems the top three guys, uh, Goodwin, McCullough and Curry don't have much interest. So regarding Goodwin, there's a reason that Notre Dame has not recruited him. Um, And, and that's, I mean, not that he's a bad kid, but you know, I mean, there is a, there is a a level of academic standard that has to be required. And and there's a reason that they have not even sniffed around with him. Uh, He's, he's just not a fit. Craig and Curry is an interesting one. And I honestly, I honestly wonder Vince, if, if Brian, if Marcus Freeman was hired before, like this process, like let's say he was hired a year ago, let's say Clark Lee left after the 2019 season, I think Notre Dame might have had more early interest in Caden Curry. The problem with Caden Curry is I don't think he's a natural defensive end, but he's like 6'4, 240. He's more of a three technique in style of play, in my opinion but he's built more like a defensive end. Well, in a 4-3 defense that's about gap control, that's not a good fit. Whereas now, you know, five technique, you know, those two things, what do they make? A great five technique. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I think there would have been a fit for him. But, you know, Notre Dame did make his top 12. I don't see him being a player. And, and honestly, as an end, look, I think Caden Curry is a really good football player. I would personally – not trade him for the three ends that they have in the class. That's just me. Uh, I know he's ranked as like a top 50 player by a couple people. I don't, I don't see him being quite to that level personally. Uh, and, and McCullough, I mean, I, I, that was never, I mean, he's been committed to Ohio state for a while. I, I don't know why he didn't have interest. I, I think he's the son of the coach at IU, right? Vince is uh, the, the guy that used to be a running back. So I could be wrong on that, but I, I thought he was. All right. Let's see here. Uh, Juwan Lee, former Riley student back in case Drew Pine. Uh, former Riley student. Oh, okay. In case Drew Pine doesn't win the starting job and say Tyler uh, beats out Pine for the second spot, do you see him transferring? I mean, I think eventually he'll transfer, but I don't think Drew Pine leaves until he gets has a degree from Notre Dame. Yeah, he's that kind of a kid. I yeah. agree with you. Plus, he is in a fortunate situation that he came to Notre Dame in 2020 in that his 2020 season basically is null and void. Right, that's true. So he has an extra year. So he could right. graduate in two years and have three years. He So if Drew stays for the 2021 and 2022 season, he'll, he'll graduate on time because he was an early enrollee last year. Right. And those guys tend to graduate in three years. Well, because of the COVID thing and, and how all that works out, if he transfers – he would still have three years left to play. 
So it would be perfect for Drew Pine because you have three years to play and you have your Notre Dame degree. And anyone that knows anything about the Drew Pine family, that is a very important thing for them. Getting that Notre Dame degree is incredibly important. But I would say let's not um, write Drew Pine off just yet as an eventual starting quarterback at Notre Dame. I agree with that as well. Uh, Notre Dame 2164 wants to know what the ceiling for our defense is this year. Uh, really high. It's a vaulted ceiling. Do you think this could be a top five defense this year, Vince? Yes. No question. Okay. Yes. What are the keys to that happening? Like, what are the two or three things that – Because I mean, look, we could talk about the concerns that Notre Dame has, but look, go read about any team in the country. Anybody, Everybody has concerns at this point in time. Right. What do you think are the two or three things that have to happen, Vince, for this defense to be top five? Uh, the corners need to step up mm-hmm. because they're going to with, – with Marcus Freeman's defense, they're going to be put on an island. And so there's going to be a lot put on them. So they're going to need to step up. I mean, look. They can do things to to mask what is happening over at corner, obviously, but it's not going to allow the defense to be as good as they can be, right? So if we're talking about a top five defense, then then the corners need to step up, period. Um, That's the biggest thing for me. I have a lot of faith in what the linebackers and the defensive line are going to be able to do. I really feel the same way about Houston. I know you've been on that. Oh, I'm – I'm in the uh, I'm on the bandwagon uh, for yeah. Houston, no question. So really, it, to me, it kind of it kind of comes down to what the corners are going to be up to. I would add that a, I think the D line can be very is going to be very good this year. I think the D line is going to definitely be good enough for them to be a top ten defense. I think for them to go be top five, a couple of those guys need to not just be part of a really good group, but they have to step up and be big time play. Like Jason Adamiola has to have a Sheldon Day type of senior season, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, Isaiah Foskey or somebody like that has to step up and be an eight to ten plus sack guy. I, I do think that's needed to jump from from you know to me a top five group you know maybe keeps Alabama a touchdown less than what Notre Dame did. Maybe they keep Clemson or or maybe the points aren't even there. Maybe they force a couple more turnovers. Right. Sure. So I think for that to happen, they have to have a couple guys on the defensive line that just are flat out because as a unit, it's going to be great in my opinion. But when you get into the playoff and you get into those big games, you need that guy that can take that game over. Right. And ideally, if you have one inside and one outside, that's the best case scenario. I mean, go look what Christian Barmore did in the second half of the Notre Dame. I know I keep bringing up – some people watch that game. I I apologize. Christian Barmore took that game over in the second half and said, you're not running on us anymore. He really did. And we see that a lot. And, And you need that kind of guy in those moments to step up and just be a monster. Sure. All right, Brian, I'm going to bug out. I'm going to leave it up to you. Do you see where we uh, – I am. We're at Dylan. Yes, we are. Yep. All right. Thanks, Thanks everybody. It, like I said, Friday is my favorite day. So uh, enjoy the home stretch with uh, my man Brian, and uh, we will hey, talk to you. Hey, Vince, what time is first pitch tonight? Uh, for me? Yeah. Oh, uh, 5.30. Okay. All right. Sounds good, man. Yes, sir. All right, guys. See you later. All right, now you're stuck with just me, everybody, so let's keep this rolling. Uh, Dylan says, just short clips that I've watched, but to me, Cone looks more poised and experienced back there than Drew Pine. Do you agree? Well, I would hope so. I mean, Jack Cone is a senior who has started a whole year in the Big Ten and and led Wisconsin to a Big Ten championship. I I think he would certainly look more poised, but I think Drew Pine has looked pretty poised as well. I I think for when you consider his age, but 
I also would suggest that we not make too much of the high of those type of clips because a lot of times you're you're going to put a, a clip on there because it's a defensive clip and it's not always going to paint the quarterback in the best light. So I, I I would I would expect Jack Cohn to look more poised in the pocket than Tyler than Drew Pine because he has more experience. But I don't think it's a, a a huge gap to be honest with you. And I think there are some things that I think Drew Pine does a little bit better. Um. Uh. That's a great question, Christopher. But a lot of times that's what happens. Look, Nick Saban's transition to this type of offense was partly due in part to, to games that they lost. You know, you started with Johnny Manziel, then they lost those those Ole Miss teams in back-to-back years in which Ole Miss was moving the ball and scoring on them. And you know, it took him dropping a couple L's to say, you know, we have to move in this direction. So I think that's with all coaches. I mean, if if you're winning, this is the thing you gotta understand. If you're winning and you're going undefeated and you've had two undefeated seasons in three years, and you're on the inside, it can be hard to say, boy, we have to change. And it's very rare that you have coaches like that 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 change. Like, look, if, if you know, when, when Urban Meyer fired Everett Withers because they had two embarrassing losses at the end of the 2013 season, they lost to Michigan State in the Big Ten title game, and, then they, and they lost to Clemson in the Orange Bowl. Well, if they win those two games by a field goal, does he fire that coach? I, I don't know. I, so I don't think it's a – it's understandable if you're winning and it's working for you because you're beating a, a softer schedule, then I can understand some hesitancy. And that's why I try to be what I am because what a lot of people say, well, you know, you're not at practice and you're not this. Well, that's kind of uh, sometimes can be a good thing because we're going to see things from a different perspective. They have their game plan. They know what they were trying to accomplish. Then they're going to look at it and say, well, you know, it's, it's this, that, and the other. That's why coaches in the offseason spend time with other coaches and, sh- and share film and talk stretch. Hey, what did you guys do against that team? Because they smoked us and you guys had success. Because you need an, an outside perspective. You need a, fr- uh, a, uh, a fresh set of eyes. You need an objective analysis. And sometimes it can be difficult because you thought as a coach it was going to work. You know, no one goes into a, a game saying, boy, I think this is a terrible game plan. We're going to get killed. Uh, or at least they, I don't, I hope that they don't do that. They definitely don't do that at Notre Dame. So clearly whatever game plan you think you had in a certain game, you thought was going to work. And sometimes it takes a a different perspective to be able to, to kind of, to talk about that. Oscar, thanks for, for being in here with us. Um, all right, let's see here. Uh, okay, Tyler, here we go. How dominant does Notre Dame need to be this year to avoid the Notre Dame doesn't belong national narrative this year? I mean, look, Tyler, until Notre Dame wins a national championship, that's going to be there. And the reason it's going to be there is because it sells, right? It's it's good for TV ratings. It's good for page views on, on the internet, right? That's what these things are for. If we're being honest, a lot of these shows that are put together, I mean, do you think Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp are are, are serious analysts or do you think they're sort of a, a sideshow to, to draw ratings it's like a you know a, a daily car wreck you know it's it's those are the, those things are there and they know that when they bash Notre Dame when they praise Notre Dame the Notre Dame fans are going to tune in and love it and the Notre Dame haters are going to tune in and hate it when Notre Dame is struggling and they rip Notre Dame the Notre Dame haters are going to tune in and love it and the Notre Dame fans are going to tune in and be ticked off but everyone's tuning in because it's Notre Dame if Notre Dame wants to not have that be the, the mantra anymore, they've got to win some of these big games. If you look at the respect that Notre Dame got in 2017 by almost beating Georgia, if you look at the respect that Notre Dame got by beating Clemson this year, 
they started to kind of say, hey, this is different. And then they go out and get beat by Clemson the way they did, and they get beat by Alabama the way they did. You want to get rid of that mantra? Then win those games. Win a championship. And that's really what it's about. Um, Connor, thank you so much for the super chat. For the sake of argument, let's say Fisher and Spindler are, are, are on the same as the veterans. Uh, what should the tie-breaking factor be for to decide who starts? I think there's there's potentially two, and it depends on each kid. And and, and what – I knew what you meant, same level. Um, it, it, two factors into it. Number one has to be who do you think, if given the starting job, will be the best by the time you get to November? I think that needs to be a part of it. So if two things are equal – and you say, well, okay, this guy's more experienced. He may be better against Florida State. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be in no- better in November when you've got to play Stanford and North Carolina or USC in October. So if we start this young guy and give him that needed experience, when he gets to the middle of the season and gets some run, gets some burn, is he then going to be able to take his game to a higher level than maybe that veteran can? So I think to me, that's one of two big factors that goes into it. Uh, and probably the biggest factor is, yes, this mate guy may not be the dude that is going to be the best for us against Florida State, but he can handle himself. But we need to get him that work because we think by game six, seven, or eight, he's going to be the guy. And that's why I'm not as opposed to two starting two starters, two freshman starters. It's more about you can't put two starting freshmen side by side. I just think that's a recipe for disaster. But maybe that won't be the case when Jarrett Patterson comes back, and that's the big the big thing we don't know. I think the other thing that could factor into this, Connor, um, is if you feel like your freshman, it, it just that freshman doesn't make the five work. It, does that make sense? So, like, you may say, "Boy, this freshman is one of our five most talented players," but you know, as a tackle, he's not here, or or his game doesn't fit. We need to, you know, we're going to be more of a zone oriented team because we've got some athletic guys and. And you know he's a dominant player, but but he needs to be more of in a, in a gap pull thing right now, and and it doesn't work with the other guys. Or maybe this guy's more of a gap pull guy, but we're you know, or more we're going to be more of a gap pull team, and this guy doesn't really have the ability to move people. So there there's some things that kind of fit in that regards into kind of making the whole five work together. But usually you don't get to the point where you're getting ready to make a decision, and that's the case. You've already made that decision. So I think at the end of the day, it comes down to if you have a freshman and a veteran and it's that close in talent, I actually would take the younger guy because if it's that close with no experience, what's it going to be like in a month, six you know, six games when he has more experience? That's the exact same mantra that I use at receiver, and I, I can't say, well, you, know, you need to get these young receivers playing time because then the playing time is going to allow them to be better and then have the exact opposite philosophy for the offensive line. So again, with your premise being everything is even except for experience, then, then give me the guy with the higher ceiling. And now that may be the veteran, right? It may be the veteran. But to me, give me the higher ceiling guy and let that guy get some experience. I hope that answers your question, Connor. Uh, here we go. I can already hear the Wisconsin avoids North Ohio State narrative. USC avoids Oregon. North Carolina avoids Clemson as well. I'm not sure what that is in reference to. All right, here we go. Um, Alex Bridges, given the poor recruiting and the lackluster coaching of younger players, who are some of the premier wide receiver coaches that we should begin learning about? Keep up the great work. I, honestly, Alex, I'm I'm not going to dive into that because I think that's unfair to Coach Alexander. And there's a lot of guys that could be that way. I, 
to me, there's a lot more really good position coaches than there are really good coordinators. It requires a completely different skill. There are a lot of guys that I know in the coaching business that I knew when I was a coach and guys that I've, that I've studied where you say, that guy's one heck of a position coach. I would not hire him to be an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator. There are guys who are great coordinators that I would not hire to be. I would never, ever hire Brent Venables to be my head coach, ever. I would hire him in a heartbeat to run my defense, right, um, among other coaches. That's an example. And so I think that's why we see some guys who are great coordinators go to become head coaches and they fail because not just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean you can be good at the next. And I think being a position coach is, is the easiest of the three, obviously. And, and so there's there's plenty of guys that could do that. I, I will say this. There is there is a coach that I like, and and, and um, some of you, I'm, I'm trying to remember his last name. I'm, I'm gonna I'm pulling it up now, but um, he, he Tyron Carrier, I believe, is his name. I'm trying to pull it up for for sure. Uh, yes, Tyron Carrier is a receivers coach at Houston. He was at West Virginia a few years ago when they had Gary Jennings, uh, and and I just I loved watching his group work. You look at Gary Jennings, he was a phenomenal college player, but he doesn't do anything in the NFL. He was a lower pick because he doesn't have elite talent. Um, and, and to me, that's kind of what I look for is give me the guy who's able to go out there and with not great players, get great production. I mean, to me, that's the epitome of what makes a great coach. Are you getting the most out of your roster? And that's why I sa- I've said before, just because – one coach has a better record than another coach doesn't make him a better coach. I mean, Kirby Smart's a tremendous example of that. With all due respect, Kirby Smart is a mediocre coach. He's a great recruiter, but he's a mediocre coach. But he has great talent, and so they're able to win games on talent alone. Other coaches are successful, and they'll win eight. eight they'll go eight and four, and you're like, wow, that was a, a great job. I mean. You know, Gary Jennings was, I'm looking at it here, Gary Jennings was a fourth-round draft pick. Don't believe he's done a whole lot in the NFL right now. And then the other kid that they had on that team, David Sills, I I believe, went undrafted. And you look at the production that those guys had, and they were incredibly productive, and their system was part of it. But the guys that replaced him didn't put up those kind of numbers. Yeah, he played one game. It looks like he has not yet to catch a pass in the NFL. Gary Jennings has yet to catch a pass in the NFL from West Virginia. So it's, again, not like he was an elite player, but when you watch him play, those kids just knew how to play. Uh, so Tyron Carey would be one guy that I've been kind of a big fan of uh, as a coach. Don't know much about him as a recruiter, so I, that's, why again, why I don't want to jump on the on the bandwagon, so to speak, as far as hire him at Notre Dame because there's more I'd have to learn. And there's a lot of coaches like that. There's a lot of guys that I think are good coaches, but I don't know what kind of recruiters they are, and that's why I would keep more of an open mind if that, if that job would have opened up. And I appreciate – um, I appreciate that. It was a loss for all of us. Lou was a loss for all of us. Christopher asked, would Steve Elmer have played in the NFL? Absolutely, I think he would have played in the NFL. Remember, Steve had had only played three years at Notre Dame before he walked away. He still had a whole other year where he would have been able to develop and, and get better. All right. Uh, John Klimek asks, Brian, you mentioned a couple Fridays back that you would have some thoughts. Um, I didn't agree with on how Notre Dame prepares their third and fourth stringers. Can you touch on that? Yeah, here, here's what it is. Number one, it's two parts. The more obvious part of it is what we see on Saturdays, and that is because Notre Dame doesn't have a really explosive offense and because Brian Kelly it just – I don't know, he has this thing where he doesn't want to run up the score, which I sort of respect. 
but I think there's a way that you can do it the right way where it's not running up the score. And that is you've got to find out ways to get your young players into games to get them some of that work. And a perfect example is the Duke game in 2019. Notre Dame is up 31 to seven in the fourth quarter. I believe it's 31 to seven. They recover a fumble, and I think there's only like five minutes, five to seven minutes left in the game. And they put Ian Book back in the game on a short field to put the ball in the end zone. That would have been a great opportunity to get Phil Dracovic some rep, even if you wanted to put your first team offensive line in or something like that. That would have been a perfect time to get your young offensive line in, or at, least, at the very least, get your quarterback in the game. And we just don't see that. And then when they do put him in the game, it's just run, 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 run. You know, when Jordan Johnson and Xavier Watts got in the game against South Florida, it would have been nice to throw them a couple quick throws, get them the ball a little bit, let them go do something. But we just don't see that, and that's part of it. But the other part of it is they don't do a good job, at least on offense. And, and I don't know if the defense is this way, but it's definitely this way on offense. Whereas when you get to a certain point of fall camp and you've kind of established here's who our starters and here's who our rotation is going to be, if you're not part of that, you're running scout team. And at Notre Dame, the scout team just flat out does not get developed. The scholarship players on scout team do not get developed the way that they do offensively, meaning they're not in game plan meetings. They're not in the same meetings with the position coaches going over certain things. They meet a lot more with the scout team coaches, which will be GAs and, and coaches of the other side of the ball than they do their own coaches. The development just stops. And this isn't something I heard from like one or two parents. This is something I've heard since Brian Kelly's been at Notre Dame from parents and, and players who have who've since left Notre Dame at all positions on offense. I've yet to hear anyone say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was on scout team, man, they coached me up. They met with me extra. The only, actually, the only position I've heard that at was offensive line under Harry Eastand. And I'm not saying Jeff Quinn doesn't do that extra work. I just haven't heard one way or the other. But it, it's an issue. And we're seeing it now with the offensive line, for example, because Andrew Kristapa got such little work, because Quinn Carroll got such little work, because Tosh Baker got such little work. I mean, look, Notre Dame, everybody knew it was a, a free year. Why did Tosh Baker only play seven snaps this year? If you thought highly enough to think he might be starting a year later, why did you only play him seven snaps? So I just, I think that's a big, those are the two things that factor into it to where you're just not coaching those guys up. And look, I know it can be challenging. I mean, we used to, look, Notre Dame has 85 scholarship players. I used to coach at a level where we'd have like 150 players. I get that it can be difficult to coach your entire roster. But the fact of the matter is, as Brian Kelly has said publicly, he has a very, I'm not worried about next year mentality. And I just don't think that's the right way to go about it. I think you always have to be developing your football team. You always have to have an eye on making sure you're developing younger players because you never know when a younger player is going to step up and, and the light's going to go on midway through the season or towards the end of the season. And then it just compounds that. And, and we definitely see that in the offensive line. We definitely see it at wide receiver where these young guys then go into the spring and they're even further behind the older players because they got such little work during the regular season. And then shocker, they're not prepared to, to go out and, and run route to know the offense like those guys do. I, I've had I've had players tell me that like they went through their freshman year and once they got out of fall camp, they never looked at the Notre Dame playbook because every week they had to study the other team's playbook. And how do you expect a freshman to compete with a junior if if that's what's going on? And so to me, that's that's kind of the issue that um, that we have to have. Oscar Castaneda says, man, I hate to beat a dead horse, but wide receiver really starts. Uh, hmm. They really need to close on Bradshaw. I think maybe scares you, but they really need to close on Bradshaw uh, at wide receiver and add another explosive receiver. I, I'm not as concerned about another explosive receiver per se if they get Bradshaw. I think if they get Bradshaw, I'm good with taking a C.J. Williams or taking a Tobias Merriweather. I'm actually really good with that. 
Number one, because you look at the last couple of classes, they've added some explosiveness. Lorenzo Style is explosive. I think, I think Deion Colsey has a lot of explosive potential. Uh, Xavier Watts, I think it can be an explosive guy. And then, of course, Xavion Bradshaw is explosive. So I'm okay taking a big guy. I think they need a legit boundary guy in this class. I do. Uh, they need a, a guy that can be a volume pass catcher in this class. And I think Tobias and C.J. Williams can both can both be the, one of those guys. Dylan Hoffman asks, is the expectation that Kevin Austin be ready for fall, uh, for camp in August? That's my understanding, yes, is that he will be ready. Uh, how, how ready will he be? Will he be ready from the standpoint of he's ready to just go full speed? He can take the same amount of reps as everybody else? That I don't know. But my understanding is that he will. Um, yeah. All right. Um, Brandon asks, no date has been set yet, but Zach Rice's mom said they will be visiting Notre Dame in June along with four others. I would imagine Ohio State, Clemson, and North Carolina are going to at least be three of those four others. How do you see his visit to Notre Dame affecting his recruitment? Does Notre Dame swing him in their favor? Look, here's the deal with him, Chris, and I, Brandon, and I've said this before. A guy like Zach Rice is Cyrus Moss is the same way. They have to be on campus for Notre Dame to have a shot. They have to. Because the way that Notre Dame recruits, and this is not a criticism, I actually prefer it this way. Notre Dame is not going to be the program that makes a million promises they know they're not going to keep. They're not going to do the things that, you know, where they're going to just basically flat out tell the kid whatever he wants to hear. They're going to, they're very honest recruiters, and I have no problem with that. I'd rather you be honest with the kid and he chooses to go elsewhere. And I, I tried to do this when I was a coach. I'd rather you be straight with you and you choose to go somewhere else than to, to, to lie to you and, and get you to come here. The reason that means so much to me is because that's what happened to me in college. And that's why I transferred after my freshman years. I was told, yes, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. We love you. You're going to do this. And like the fourth day of fall camp, I got moved to another position. And so you lose that trust and it's just gone forever. And, and they wasted my time and all those other kind of things. So I would rather them be honest and not get a kid. So and that's why the campus and Brian Kelly has talked about this a lot. That's why the visits are so important because you have to really get Notre Dame when you're that kind of big time player. And, and it's hard to really get Notre Dame if you've never been for some kids. And I think those two guys are two that I have in my mind as those visits could be a swing. Now, here's the caveat. Here's what I don't know. That's not going to swing it if they haven't been putting on the full court press in the ways that they can. So if Brian Kelly hasn't talked to Zach Rice multiple times, if Tommy Reese isn't constantly on the phone with him, if Jeff Quinn's not constantly on the phone with him, then the visit won't swing it. I'm not saying there are or are not. I don't know. Zach Rice doesn't answer our phone calls or our text messages or our DMs, so I don't know if they're doing those kind of things. So they very well could be. If they are, then that visit could swing things. And I know that the staff is pushing hard on Cyrus Moss, so that's another one on defense that I say that could swing things. Kamari Rogers is another one that I would say the visit could be huge for them. Um, all right. I, I mean, DBZ says, it's obvious to me that Brian Kelly has something against Jordan Johnson. No, I even recruit him then. Well, Brian Kelly didn't really recruit Jordan Johnson. Chip Long did. And – and Chip Long recruited who Chip Long wanted to recruit, and that's what coordinators should do. I don't know if Brian Kelly has something against Jordan Johnson. That's a pretty serious accusation, but it's it's. I can understand why you feel that way, and and it it is because Brian Kelly it seems like never has anything positive to say about Jordan Johnson, and the few times that he will say something about it, it always seems like there's a caveat of a but 
he still stinks here. He's not doing something there. It just never seems like, you know, hey, he's, he's a great player. We just, you know, he's just got to get, he's a great player though. It's never like, you know, he's coming along, but uh, it just, it's always seems negative. So it does seem like it, but let's be honest. That could also be because Brian Kelly thinks he's trying to more motivate Jordan Johnson because he thinks Jordan Johnson has a ton of potential. If we're being fair, right? Because we don't know what Brian Kelly thinks. If we're being fair, it could be he doesn't like Jordan Johnson and he wants him to leave so they can free up a scholarship somewhere else. It could be that. It could also be that Brian Kelly thinks Jordan Johnson could be a great player. And maybe he doesn't think Jordan's doing the things he needs to do to be a great player. And that's his way of saying, hey, we're not going to just give you the job because you're a five-star recruit. You got to earn it. And and the way to earn it is to do this, 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 and this. Now, that still doesn't excuse the overall offensive philosophy that makes it harder for young players to develop. But at the same time, each of these players on their end has to has to say, okay, I'm going to go out and earn it. Sometimes players do what they need to do to earn it, and they don't get their shot. That just happens, and that happens at Notre Dame. But other times, kids think that they deserve something that they haven't earned yet. Maybe that's going on with Jordan Johnson. I don't know. I don't want to put negative negativity on on Brian Kelly Kelly's attitude toward Jordan Johnson, and I don't want to do what I've I've read too many people do, which is assume negative things about Jordan Johnson when really you have no idea. And, and so that's why I say let's be careful with that because look, I I get it, DBZ. I'm tempted to think that because of how Brian Kelly talks about Jordan Johnson, but I could just as easily explain that it's he acts that way because he thinks highly of Jordan Johnson, and I don't want to just assume that it's a it's it's one. Tommy Leonard gives us his ideal starting offensive line. Uh, Blake Fisher or Tosh Baker left tackle. Blake Fisher left guard. Quinn, uh, is, I think you mean Zeke Carell, not Quinn Carroll at center. Lug Spindler right guard. Jarrett Patterson right tackle. Josh Lug's not going to be rotating with anybody at, at guard. If anything, what I would do there is I would put Patterson at left tackle, Baker at right tackle. Uh, and, and I would have Lug at right guard, and then I would rotate Spindler and Fisher at left guard. Rotate the two freshmen at guard until you feel like they're both they're both there. All right. Uh, with that being said, DBZ's back. With that being said, since I don't think JJ Jordan Johnson will get much playing time, will they force feed Joe Wilkins the ball? I don't know if they're going to force feed him the ball, but I think they're going to try to force feed him playing time, assuming Kevin Austin isn't healthy. And that's just kind of what they do. That's what they do with veteran players. I hope that I'm wrong, but, you know, I, you know we'll see. Um, all right, Dylan Hoffman asks, if Spindler Fisher gets some starts, see reps this year, how much do you think that strengthens that position group for the 2022 season? Oh, I think it's great. I think the more ex- – I think offensive line is the one position in football. Offensive line and quarterback, but even more so offensive line, are, is, is the position where experience is the best – and even more important is experience working together and, and working in the same spots with the same guy to your right and the same guy to your left because it just makes everything. It's kind of like my, my wife and I will have conversations and we'll get about halfway into the, the statement. And like today, I, I wanted my wife to make me tea. And I said, hey, babe, before the show starts, can you? And she looks at me and goes, do you want me to make you some tea and bring it down? So I said, yes. I mean, so she just knew what I wanted our first year of marriage, I would have had to say it twice before she would have understood what I was asking her to do because we just didn't have that kind of, that kind of communication experience. And so it's very similar when it comes to football players, like receivers and quarterbacks that have been together for a long time. It's like, they don't even have to signal anymore. They just, they're so locked in that they just look at each other. Like, yeah, okay. We know what we're doing. 
And that's true of the offensive line. When you've played together for a longer period of time, uh, you know what each other can do. You know the calls. You know that, hey, even if I don't say anything, I know this guy's with me. And so, yes, I think if those guys get experience this year, if they're not starters this year, I would be shocked if they're not starters in 2022, meaning both of them. I think one of them ended up probably starting or playing a bunch this year. But, you know, we'll, we'll have to see kind of how the rest of the position group shake out. You know, does Jarrett Patterson come back and, and for two more years, or is he going to leave after this year? There's a lot of things we don't know uh, to kind of see how that HEPAR goes. All right. Zach Nichols, two-parter. First, on Wednesday, Brian went through his big board at wide receiver. Where would you rank the big three, Bradshaw, with the guys Indy has brought in the last two years at the position? So uh, are you referring to Xavier Watson, Lorenzo Styles? Uh, with uh, see, yeah, okay, so okay, all right, so let's look. So Bradshaw, his grade, I can actually pull it up right now. Um, and, and his grade relative to juniors, when they were as, as juniors, uh, his grade was – Higher than let me pull up the 2021 class. Okay, so that's that. I actually have a grade, I have a point system that allots that he was higher than. All right, hold on. So he was higher than both Deion Colsey and Lorenzo Styles as juniors on my board. And he was higher than everybody except Jordan Johnson as a junior in the previous class. So actually the only two receivers that I had ranked ahead of him when looking at his numbers in 2020 would have been one, one player. Okay. So him and Xavier Watts had a, had, so Xavier, he had Xavier Watts had a higher grade after his senior year, but Xavier wasn't ranked as high as a junior after juniors. The only two receivers that I had on the board that had higher grades than Xavier, Xavier Bradshaw was Jordan Johnson and Jalen McMillan who went to Washington. So you look at the last two years, his junior grade compared to the other junior grades, Jordan Johnson's the only guy that came to Notre Dame that had a better grade as a junior. Now, Xavier Watts, after his senior year, improved, got better, and he was a couple points higher. But if if Xavion makes the improvements that you normally see, just normal junior to senior improvements, you know, maybe five pounds bigger, maybe a step quicker, a little bit better route runner, that's going to alter his grade because for me it's like an eight point eight eight parts grade, and you know grades range from like seventy to hundred, and so I grade you out at eight different categories and then I add them up and that's you know that's how I get my ranking, so I just compare the points and I, I look at where they were as juniors and seniors. Second part of Zach's question. Seems like there's concern that Johnson or Watts might leave if they don't get run this year. Not asking for a source report, but how worried are you about this? Um, look. All of that is speculation. We don't know what Jordan Johnson's thinking. We don't know what Xavier Watts is thinking. Right now, both of those guys are, are really only, I mean, I'm sure that they're just focused on battling right now. Will they then have to sit down with their families and reassess things after the season? Sure, a lot of players are going to have to do that, especially with you know the transfer rule uh, changing. So I, I, think, I think that there's concern because of the new rule but I also think you have to understand that 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 Jordan Johnson and Xavier Watts both have families that encourage Notre Dame, encourage Notre Dame to their kids, and they like Notre Dame as well a, a lot. But they understand that you're not just there for football only, and I think that's why Lawrence Keys has stayed. Lawrence Keys's mom uh, understands that there's more to just football at Notre Dame. 
And so even though there was frustration that maybe he wasn't playing as much as he, he was, stick it out, keep battling, you're going to get your shot, but getting that degree is really important. So I don't think they're just necessarily going to leave just because of playing time. It could happen. I'm a little concerned about it, but we're not even done with spring yet. You know, Maybe Jordan goes out there in his last couple practices, he makes acrobatic catches and plays great in a spring game, or Xavier does the same thing, and, and they'll get their shot. Maybe there's an injury, and they get their shot. So I wouldn't... I wouldn't think too much about that just yet. Let's get through the end of spring. I'll do some digging, see what I can find out, and hopefully we'll have a better idea. Um, all right, very early, but Drake Bowen seems to have interest in Notre Dame. He has a lot of interest in Notre Dame, very early. All right. Okay, NCAA approved a rule, but not sure on specifics. More emphasis on uniform violations, taunting, and coaches leaving the sidelines. Could this be one of the Dabo rule Clemson Notre Dame first game? I I think what th yes they, I I am all for not letting coaches get on the field. I don't think coaches have any business to be on the field. And it's one thing for like a guy like Brent Venables to kind of get a little too close as he's making calls, but like for a coach who's ticked about a call to be on the field, uh uh. I mean, you do that in the NBA and you're getting teed up, or you do that in college basketball and Mike Shashevsky walks six seven feet out towards an official during during live action, or you know you're getting ripped, you're getting teed up. So I'd like to see that. The the uniform violations lighten up. That's not something we should be wasting our time with. Taunting, get a life. I mean, you know, it's it's football. Okay. I, I these these uh these things the NCAA focuses on are are just killing me. Uh some USC comments reacting to Vince's uh thing. Pretty sure I had shed tears in the end of the USC game. I was numb. I just was like, what happened? Like you think you're gonna, you think you've got the win. I was sitting in my office. I've, I've told that story before. I was sitting in my office. We had played that day, and I'm just like, wait a minute, what happened? How did they, how did they not win that game? I, you, there's two. I thought they were, I thought they had it won on the fourth and nine. I was like, no, there's no way they're gonna complete this. Uh, I thought they had it won when Corey Mays knocked the ball out of Matt Leinart's hands. You know, it just, it was, it was to me, it was kind of, I was kind of numb. I, I just didn't hit me. And we hear the throw to that Matt Liner's fourth and nine throw to Dwayne Jarrett was just, I mean, it was beautiful. It was, one, it was a beautiful, beautiful play. Okay. The fifth horseman with the talent we have, do you think the Irish are a legitimate title contender within the next two years? No, not just to make the playoffs, but to win it all. I, I there's a couple positions that I still need to see how good they're going to be. I think at linebacker and at corner, there's talent for them to get there. But I, I have to see it more. Whereas, like with Braden Lindsay, it's like, hey, if he's healthy, he's going to be a beast. If Kevin Austin's healthy, he's going to be a beast. If if they give Chris Tyree the ball more, he's going to be a monster. You know, if if they use Tyree and, and uh, Williams together more, it'll be, you know, so there's I'm a lot more confident in the talent actually on offense, which is kind of funny. Uh, but I, I think talent wise on defense, there's still a couple positions that are a little concerning to me just because I like who they signed at corner. I liked who they signed. I like Jaden Mickey a lot. They still need a, 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 but I still think the, the talent level can continue to improve. Safety is the one position that concerns me a lot, especially once Kyle Hamilton leaves, uh, because I just don't know what there is behind behind Kyle Hamilton and, and Houston Griffin. Now, I do like the safety class they signed last year. I like Kari G a lot. I like Justin Walters a lot. But they they need a good class here. So those are the positions where I'm I'm worried about talent. Offensively, I'm not worried about the talent at all. Offensively, I have the exact opposite off uh, concern. Is it 
Are they going to run the kind of system that allows them to score the way you need to score? I'll say it again. The teams that have won the playoff games, the, the semifinal games since they started in 2014 have averaged about 40 points a game. The teams that have, and I'm talking in those games, they've averaged 40 points. The teams that have won the national championship game have averaged 39.7 points per game, and it was only dragged down by that the one year where, where Alabama only scored 26 to beat Georgia. Every other year, the team that's won the title has scored at least, I believe, at least 35 points every single time. So that's that's more of my concern there. They're very close. I don't think, and this is where Vince and I disagreed a little bit last week, I don't think they're quite where they need to be to say legitimate title contender, meaning, yes, they match up spot for spot or group for group against Alabama. I already, however, think they're at a place where if they get the right matchup in the semifinal, that if they were to play a Clemson, Ohio State, or 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 an Alabama in the title game, I do think Notre Dame is at a place where if they can catch a break or two, they can win those games. So they're close, but if we're just talking about the composition of the roster, there's still a couple places where the talent needs to be upgraded a bit uh, to say that they're at that level. And then offensively, the one position that I would question the talent to to, to win it all because of that position is probably quarterback. I mean, I think the talent, I think the talent is there, but it's not it's the talents there if the other players around them are good. I don't know if there's a, a quarterback on the roster. Maybe Tyler Buckner is the close thing to have it. But, like, I think Trevor Lawrence made Clemson look better this year than they actually were. And we'll find out if I'm right in 2021. But I think he made them better than they were. I think Justin Fields did that to a degree at, at Ohio State this year. And I don't know if Notre Dame has that kind of quarterback where he can just make everybody else around him better. We'll find out if they do. I think they have great point guard quarterbacks, and that's a good thing too. Mac Jones is a point guard quarterback, but if Mac Jones had, you know, lesser players, I don't, I don't think Mac Jones is putting up the numbers uh, that he did. All right. Here's another USC game from Allen English. I played a college football game that afternoon and rode home with my parents just so I could. So, so basically what you're saying, Allen, is you didn't ride the bus home with your team after a game because you wanted to listen to Notre Dame game. That is awesome. And I have to admit, I did that once. Uh, it was actually 2013 when Notre Dame was playing Michigan. My parents were in town visiting. I told the coach, hey, I'm, I'm going to ride back my family. You know, we were playing at Albion actually up in Michigan. So I'm going to ride back my family. And it was really so I could listen to the Notre Dame Michigan game on the radio. So, um, but I uh, so I could listen to the USC game on the drive home. I hurt more for Notre Dame, from Notre Dame losing than my team losing. I feel your pain. I feel your pain on that one. All right, Dylan asks, oh, Hoffman asks, uh, hypothetical here. Two years from now, Brian Kelly retires. Marcus Freeman gets promoted promoted head coach. Does he get Tommy Reese to stay on as OC? Does Tommy want to stay? How would you feel about it? Uh, I would I would say yes and yes to those. I. I think when you listen to Tommy Reese talk, go listen to his press conference from Thursday, yesterday. And you listen to how he talks about Clark Lee. And then, I'm sorry, my throat's getting a little dry. Then how he talks about Marcus Freeman. And you can see there's a lot of respect and reverence there. And and even like, you know, I know Chip Long a little bit. And he had a lot of high, he had a lot of praise for Tommy Reese and, and, and that relationship. I think Tommy gets along with people really well. I think Tommy also understands that, listen, if in two years Marcus Freeman gets the head coaching job, Tommy Reese is still only 31 years old. If Marcus Freeman wants to keep him, I absolutely think Tommy Reese would stay. And then you stay with Mark, Marcus Freeman. You guys build Notre Dame up. You go out and win a title. 
And then one of two things happens in four or five years, maybe Marcus Freeman gets a head coaching job and you're a 35 year old and now it's your turn to be the Notre Dame head coach. Or it, Tom Reese gets an opportunity to be head coach somewhere, which, you know, and he goes from Notre Dame to there. So I think it would, it would, it would be one to say, how would I feel about it? Look, I've, I've tried to say this as, as, clear as I possibly could. I was very much against Tommy Reese being hired to be the offensive coordinator last year. Very much against it because I thought Tommy Reese was not the right guy for the job in 2020. You had a veteran quarterback. You had a veteran offensive line. You had a quarterback that I thought needed a different voice. And that's why, and you had a coach like Joe Moorhead out there. And I thought Joe Moorhead in 2020 could have got the most out of that roster and maybe also in 2021. But what I also said at the time, and I know some Dylan, I'm, this isn't towards you, but there are some people that didn't hear this part. They just stopped listening at he's not the right hire. I also said that I would like to see him, Tommy, stay. I thought it would have been good for him to coach receivers or something like that for a year because I, I, having experienced that, I know how much my knowledge of the game, my true understanding of the game changed by I played quarterback. Uh, I played receiver for a year, but I, you know, so that helped. But I mean, coaching tight ends for a year, coaching running backs, coaching receivers helped me really get a better feel for the entire aspects of, of, of offensive, of offensive football. When I was an offensive tight ends coach, I worked a lot with the offensive line coach. And so again, it just expanded my knowledge of it. And I thought that had been good for Tommy. But then I thought Joe Moorhead's only going to be here for a couple of years before he leaves. And I was all for Tommy Reese taking over after that. So that didn't happen. My opinion of Tommy Reese hasn't changed in that with a little bit more seasoning, I think he can be an excellent offensive coordinator. So if if he is that and he is as good as I think he's going to be, works on the recruiting trail like he has and then continues to improve and get better as, as he gets more experience, if Marcus Freeman is the head coach at Notre Dame when Kelly retires, it means Notre Dame kept winning. If Brian, if Notre Dame retires, if Kelly retires after 2022 because Notre Dame went 7-5, and five, you're probably not going to hire a coach from that staff. If Kelly retires and you keep Mark Freeman, it's because you're winning. I could absolutely see Tommy Reese staying. And if he did, I'd be thrilled about that. Thrilled about it. Because I do think from a potential standpoint, Tommy Reese has the potential to be an outstanding offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. Or anywhere, really. Uh, is it indicative of anything that Shane Simons, Equinemy St. Browns, and Jordan Johnson's highly ranked younger brothers went elsewhere? I don't know who Jordan Johnson's younger brother is. Uh, maybe I should, but I don't know who that is. Shane Simon's younger brother, Cody Simon, was not a guy that Notre Dame pushed for. So they liked him early, but they backed off. So I don't think that's necessarily an issue. The St. Browns was a completely different animal. And honestly, I'm I'm not upset about that. They never really pushed for Osiris St. Brown either. So I, I don't get too much wrapped into that. Honestly, the reality is, Christopher, is parents that do it right allow each kid to make their own decision. And that's why you see kids not go to their dad's alma mater. It's why you don't see y'all don't always see brothers playing together. Um, I, you know, to me, I don't make a whole lot of that. And every circumstance is different. We've also seen brothers sign up. We saw the Aquaras. You know, the the, the brothers sign up. We saw it with the Golics. We've seen brothers go to the same school that at Notre Dame that their older brothers went to. It's it's every situation's different. All right. Okay. Here's an heard out in Twitter world that Elko, one of several candidates for the Kansas head coaching job. I hope he doesn't take that job. Uh, that to me is just a, that is a, a, a job I would not want to take And it. Yeah. 
I wouldn't want to take that. All right. Here we go. Dylan Hoffman, usually make a trip to South Bend for a game once a year. Next year, buddies and I were looking to make the spring game a tradition, something you'd recommend or no. Yeah, I think the spring game is a lot of fun. I do. You can come. The, the Here's the thing that's nice about the spring game. There's a lot of people there. You can tailgate. You can do all the stuff that you can do, but it's only like 20, 30,000 deep, which means there's enough people there to have some fun uh, and tailgate and do different things, but there's not as much pressure because there's a game that Saturday. Um, some people will come to the t- to the spring game and not actually go inside or go inside late because that's not really the point. It's about coming and having fun. It's less busy on campus. Again, still busy, but you know it's half the people. Sometimes a third of the people that you get for a normal a normal weekend. So you can do more seeing the stadium and you know checking out the all, you know, going to the bookstore, checking out the admin building, going down to the grotto seeing things in town. So, I, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely something I would recommend that you do. And I think South Bend's a, you know, only growing and expanding as a community. So, absolutely. If you guys want to make that a, a trip, I would do it. And, you know, maybe one of these days we'll we'll have, we'll do something with all of us in this community, you know, this Irish Breakdown community. So, um, Dylan Riggins asks, have you heard anything about Steve Angeli making any impact with other recruits since he's committed? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Steve Angeli's recruiting his butt off for Notre Dame. There's no question about it. Okay. Matthew Edwards says, if Cone has a monster season, was it because BK finally found a quarterback that could make the most of his offense, or is it because a fully formed, this is great, a fully formed mature quarterback didn't have time to regress like past Notre Dame quarterbacks? That is one of the best questions anyone has ever asked. I, I have to say, and look, if you're someone who thinks everything is wonderful at Notre Dame, plug your ears because you're not going to like this answer. This is my most objective answer I could possibly give. If Jack Cohn has a big year this year, I think it's partly two reasons. Number one, three reasons. Number one, he's going to have a lot of talent around him, skill-wise. There's a lot of talent in Notre Dame. You have a very good backfield. You have very the best tight end in the country and a very good receiving core. I think this year Notre Dame has a chance to have one of the five best backfields in the country. I think they have a chance. They have the best tight end in the country and arguably the best depth chart at tight end in the country. Definitely top five. And I honestly believe they have a top 10 receiving group talent wise. And if they play to their potential, it's definitely going to be top 10. You have a lot of talent around them. So I think that's a part of it. Part of it, number two, is that, you know, if they make the necessarily philosophical and schematic changes, is part number three. And then part number two. And then part number three is that Jack Cohn was developed in a system that was not Notre Dame's, which means the things that have plagued past Notre Dame quarterbacks, which is too many cooks in the kitchen, Brian Kelly probably maybe being more involved than he should at certain times, uh, especially as he stopped being as engaged with the offense in like he was early. Uh, just all the things that go with being at Notre Dame as a quarterback, all the pressure, all the interviews, all those different things, was able to avoid all that. And, and playing a system that was more built around fundamentals, 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 which is what Wisconsin is all about. I think that would factor into it as well. Uh, so I, I do think there's something to your question. There's no, there's no question about it. Christopher says Notre Dame would make more money, TV money, by joining a conference. Nobody disputes that, but there has been several cases made, and Pete Sampson made one a couple of years ago that was very well done. That anyone that really studies this issue will realize is that Notre Dame may make more TV money but they would actually probably over time lose more money than they make off the TV if they stopped being an independent and traveling around the country. That's why Notre Dame has such a huge endowment. They, they get so much donation money every year uh, is, is because of that. 
Okay. Um, Corey D, are we going to endure another exasperating season where explosive and athletic wide receivers like Jordan Johnson, Xavier Watson, Lorenzo Styles play? What are you hearing? I've heard two different things. I mean, Brian Kelly says what he says in the press conference, but then I've also heard that from sources that those guys are getting a lot of reps. I've heard Xavier Watts has gotten reps with the first team at times. I've heard, you know, Lorenzo Styles, a guy they're very high on. I, I think we need to just look, I'm going to continue to evaluate what the coach says. And when coach Kelly says things like he said the other day, I'm going to talk about it and what that potentially means, but I'm also going to remain cautiously optimistic that those guys are going to get their opportunity in the fall to go play. And if they stick it out, then, then we're going to get a chance to see those guys perform. I think I'm confident in saying we will see a deeper rotation this year than we have seen in the past. And I'm hoping that the the the, the schedule will set up nicely enough with Florida State and Purdue and Toledo and teams like that to where maybe they do get those guys into games, even if it's in sort of a backup role late in the game and they get their chance to make plays and, and they take advantage of it. So. Um, Okay, Brand, I did think that was true because I saw his dad at the camp they were at the other day, and I, I thought it was him. So, Okay, uh, Dylan Hoffman asks, I believe Notre Dame recruited Prince Colley and Nolan Ziegler to play Rover. Can you compare their games a bit, and who has this higher ceiling in your opinion? I would probably go with Prince Colley as having a higher ceiling right now, but I'm, I'm holding out def- – I'm, I'm writing that lightly in pencil because I, no- I think the one thing Nolan Ziegler has – that that Prince doesn't have is phenomenal length. I think Nolan Ziegler is probably the most underrated recruit in Notre Dame's class right now. I, I have him down as a top 200 recruit. I think by the time it's all said and done, he could be he could be sniffing the top 100. I think he's long, he's athletic, he's very talented, he's rangy, um, he's very fluid, he can thump. I think he's got a chance to be a really good football player. Prince Colley's a little on the shorter side, although he does have good length. He's more about explosiveness and just uh, that burst and power. So they're very different players. And I could see a scenario in which, you know, Prince Colley maybe eventually plays more of a will position and Nolan Ziegler's the rover. I, I, I could definitely see that depending on how his body develops. I, I, I could also see Nolan Ziegler blowing up and being over 230 pounds because he's got a great frame and he ends up moving inside. So I, I think they can play together. They have very different games. But I, I'll say this. After their junior seasons, I think Nolan Ziegler was a slightly better prospect. Prince had a monster senior season. He got a little, he got taller, he filled out his frame, and he had another burst in explosiveness. And I liked Prince when he when he committed. I, I remember when he got offered, and I was like, okay, uh, some kid I've never heard of and or barely heard of, and he's a three star. What's this going to look like? And, and as much as I hate the star ranking, that still pops in my head from time to time when I see that they've offered a three star kid. Then I popped in Prince's film and I liked what I saw. And then, of course, you watch a senior film and he just he just blew up and he got way better. And and to me, at that same age, Nolan's a little bit better, but Prince made a huge jump. So if Nolan doesn't also make a huge jump, then he won't he won't have the same as high of a grade based on their senior film. Okay. Uh JJ Goodway in Reese's PC. He mentioned most every receiver except for Xavier Watts, and he hasn't really appeared in any practice videos for two weeks. Is he not practicing? Is he behind a lot of other guys? I don't have an answer for you. I, I he was on the practice films a lot early. He hasn't been in, in a while. I t- I've talked to people that said Xavier's getting a lot of work with the one and twos, but we just not seen him in, in practice clips. I don't know what to believe at this point in time. So he is practicing. He has not missed any practices. He's not hurt. 
or anything like that. It's just they're just not they're just not talking about them. So I you know I I can't answer that why that is, uh, but unfortunately that's just kind of that's just kind of where they've been. Um. All right. John Climax says, all right, great job as always. Vince spoke to what has to be happen on D. I agree, but would add that if the line gets after it, it will make everyone's job easier. Uh, John, I agree with you completely. And, and that's why I think the D line as it is, is going to be good enough, in my opinion, for Notre Dame to have a top 10 defense this year. Even if the corners don't make big jumps or and Houston Griffith is good, but not great. Because to your point, what you're getting at is if your defensive line is pressuring the run game and getting after the quarterback, it, it's going to make the you don't have to cover as much. It's, you're going to make more plays, and so I, I think that that is kind of that is why I think it's a top ten defense. Where I would say is is it's not just enough to get after it, but when you're playing those big games, Clemson in the ACC title game, Alabama in the postseason, whether it be Georgia or Oklahoma or Ohio State in the playoff or big bowl games, you not only need your D-line as a whole to be really good, you need somebody to play at an elite level. And that's the thing that's the difference for me between top 10 and top 5. But to your point, you're absolutely right. The defensive line is the key. And this is a shameless plug. I wrote an article today. It posted about around 11 o'clock. So if you haven't seen it, check it out at irishbreakdown.com. And it is uh, – actually, I'm going to see if I can put it into the chat – but it's essentially Marcus Freeman explaining how the defensive line is going to be is that this is going to be a defensive line driven uh, group, and that's his defense. And and he had to kind of not be that way uh, really at Cincinnati because he didn't have the kind of talent that he's going to have at Notre Dame. He's got some very very good talent at Notre Dame. So I think that that is going to be the key between it being top 10 or top five. And I think you're absolutely right. The defensive line makes everybody else better hundred percent. And that's why it's been so fun to watch the job that Mike Elson has done coaching and recruiting the defensive line because Notre Dame, that was a big thing for Notre Dame for a long time was they just didn't have the depth that other people had at, at that position. And now they're, they're definitely getting to that point. All right. Dylan uh, Bennett, uh, yeah, I say you haven't been a while. It has been a while. Hey guys, been a while, but I'm curious. How many guys do you think get drafted next year? Also, Kyle Hamilton gets drafted top 10 factor fiction. I I'd have to go through and, and really look at the roster. Honestly, I have not looked at 2022. I'm going to start doing that this week. Cause I always, after the draft, I come up like that Monday, I'll have like a, you know, looking ahead to 2022 kind of thing. Kyle Hamilton to me is a top 10 talent. It's now he's got to make, growth as a junior that all young guys that age have to do but yes he is to me a guy that has a chance to be a top 10 pick he is a phenomenal player and I think if he fills out his frame you could start seeing people talking about him being able to play in the second level as well he was much better in the box as a sophomore than I thought he would would be and that's coming from someone who had him as a five star from day one um Matthew thank you so much for this Really, really appreciate that. Appreciate your support of our channel, not just with your time, but also with your money, man. I really, really appreciate that. Um, we're going to continue to keep it up. There's no doubt about that. We're 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 having a lot of fun with this. And to, this has been. I want to thank all y'all for being here with me today because this has been um this has been a, a a rough week for a lot of us around Notre Dame football and and in the media uh, losing Lou and and being able to do things like this and just get your mind off it for a little while has been has been a, a big one. So um, 
really appreciate all y'all for being a part of this. And we, we still got a lot of questions here. So uh, here we go. Um, Dylan Bennett, is Lucas a Notre Dame lean right now? I wouldn't call him a Notre Dame lean. What I have said for a while is that I absolutely think Notre Dame is in his top three or four. I think Notre Dame is in as good a position as anybody. I don't think he's necessarily leaning anywhere, and we have to get him back on campus to where I really feel that way. But I I don't think Notre Dame has could be in a better position with him going into visits. I really like where they're at. And then Dylan Hoffman talks about that. The interest is definitely mutual. It, it is definitely, definitely mutual. All right, Dylan Bennett, this is an interesting one. In fair, This is talking about the receivers. Um, we have upperclassmen who are explosive and athletic. Think you're asking? Uh, think uh, you're asking? Will there be a rotation that includes those you mentioned? Answer: Probably not. That's the key, Dylan. You nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. The guys that that were all that a lot of people are wanting Jordan Johnson and Xavier Watts to play over are the same guys that two years ago they wanted to play over Chris Fink and Brent, you know, uh, Ben Skoranek and Javon McKinley. I. I don't I don't think Jordan Johnson is their best or second best receiver yet. What my issue with or the same with Xavier Watts, I think Braden Lindsay and Lawrence Keyes and Kevin Austin's Kevin Austin could be dynamic players. I'm much higher on Avery Davis than, than a lot of people seem to be. A lot of people in our in this community that we're talking about, people just don't seem to have the same excitement for him that I do. My thing is not that they should be the number one or two guy, it's that they need to be in the rotation. They need to get that opportunity. And then if they step up and make a bunch of plays and they can rise up the depth chart, or if they don't make plays and you you don't play them anymore, but they need that opportunity to play. Uh, and and here's a great point. You know, J- Joe Wilkins is not Jordan Johnson or Xavier Watts, nor does he have the grace and natural ability styles. That is true. But he's also still a good play, a solid player. It, it, and to me, it's it's it, if it's if it comes down to Joe Wilkins is playing 60 snaps a game, then I may lose it. But if if Jordan's only playing 20 snaps a game because Kevin Austin's healthy and balling out or because Brayden Lindsey's balling out or because Avery Davis or Lawrence Keyes are balling out, then, you know, I, I'm not going to be upset about that as long as he's still also playing 15, 20 snaps a game. That's the thing that I would say about it. Um, let's see here. The, you guys are talking there, so I'm going to I'm going to let you guys do that. It's a good conversation going there. So I, I think it uh, I think it's it's here. So, OK, Christopher Ryan, here we go. Join late, so apologies if this is already addressed. Which game will be the biggest challenge on the schedule this year and why? You know, Christopher, the interesting thing about that is I kind of go back and forth right now, this time of year. I go back and forth on that a lot because there's a lot of teams that are like Notre Dame. We don't know yet what they're going to be. Uh, And that, to me, is going to factor in who the biggest challenge is. I, I think, to me, there's a group of three or four teams that I look at and say, that game is in my let's see how things progress. USC is going to be that way because it's a rivalry game. USC has a lot of talent. They lost some really good players, and so I don't know if USC is going to be a great team next year, but they weren't a great team in 2018 and almost and took Notre Dame down to the wire. They weren't a great team in 2019, and Notre Dame, you know, they Notre Dame needed to, to kind of score late to put that game away. And this team is going to be similar to that. It's that air raid. It's, it's, you know, Slovis is not going to be a junior. He's going to have a lot more experience. So that's a game that always concerns me. And rivalry games always concern me. Wisconsin concerns me because they're going to be a big physical team. And if Notre Dame doesn't adapt their offense to a, a way that allows them to play, use their speed to their advantage, and they try to play bully ball against Wisconsin, it's not going to go well. So that concerns me a little bit. 
North Carolina should should once again have a, a high-powered unit. That's a game that concerns me. Those three are probably the ones I'm most concerned about uh, at this point in time. Cincinnati, Cincinnati's an interesting one because I think that the, the knowledge that the two staffs have of each other is going to help Notre Dame more than it's going to help Cincinnati because I think Notre Dame has top to bottom the better players. Uh, so I think those are the four games to me that I look at and say the ones I'm most concerned about. And right now, the one I'd probably say I'm most concerned about is probably USC simply because of their talent level and just the fact that it's a rivalry game. That That's where I'm at. Wisconsin is going to be my biggest one if Notre Dame doesn't make the schematic adjustments, but I'm I'm confident they're going to make enough adjustments where they're going to be able to out-athlete Wisconsin. That, that's at least where I'm at. Um. Oh, here's Christopher. Back up the Brinks truck for Brian Hartline. Yes, he's done a phenomenal job at Ohio State. He's not on my list because I don't see there's a there's not a chance in the world that Brian Hartline leaves his alma mater to come be a position coach at Notre Dame. I think the only way Notre Dame would be able to, ever be able to get a guy like that because he's at his alma mater is to make him the offensive coordinator, which you're not going to do when you have Tommy Reese. So, yes. That would be a guy that would be on my list if I thought there was a chance in heck it would happen, but it's not going to happen. Domer, Texas, 22. Any concern the Fisher Spindler getting so many reps could be related to the lack of development of Quinn Carroll, Christophic? Could this be a Jeff Quinn issue? I think it's a fair question. Um, I don't really feel in the mood to hammer Coach Quinn today, but I did say earlier that I think the that we just haven't seen the development of younger players the last year or two as we needed to see. And I think that's true of the offensive line as well. Whether that's a Coach Quinn issue or a Brian Kelly issue could be debated. But I think the fact that none of those young guys have progressed to the point where they can beat out freshmen, even talented freshmen, to me is is problematic. You know, even that 2014 team that that had all of its struggles was still good enough with Nick Martin, with Christian Lombard, with Steve Elmer, with Matt Hegarty that. And, and Ronnie Stanley, that Quentin Nelson didn't play. Quentin Nelson still redshirted that year. And do you want to tell me that that those – I mean, Quentin Nelson was a big-time recruit as well. Quentin Nelson was not better than Rocco Spindler. So I just – I have a hard time – I have a hard time viewing it. As, yes, they're very talented players, but are they really that much better that they're already starting 10 practices into the spring? I, ha- I have an issue with that. Uh, here we go. Um, let's see here. I, I guys, Dylan, is there any talk with sources that a receiver or D lineman could be looking to transfer with spring coming to a conclusion? I figure some hard decision we need to make. Yes, that, a lot of hard decisions need to be made. But honestly, if there were kids that were looking at transferring right now, they would have already transferred like Kendall Labarama. Let's just just let's get through spring. Let's get through finals. Uh, give us a week or two after spring to, and we'll eventually get into that. But I, I just think it's unfair for us to start uh, making questions about who might transfer because then we're just looking at it from an outside standpoint of well he's not playing so equals transfer not every kid's that way not every kid says oh you know you can be ticked that you're not playing and still not say i'm leaving we've seen a lot of notre dame kids be that way i mean miles boykin could have left and he didn't there have been plenty of guys that could have left because they were upset they weren't playing more you think brock wright was happy that he sat for four years as a no best a number three tight end of course not but he's still stuck it out. Not every kid that doesn't get his way as a freshman or sophomore is going to leave. And, and we don't know which of those kids in Notre Dame are going to be that way. Do I expect transfers after the spring? 
I don't know who, but I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. But let's just let it play out before we start before we start doing that. I just because I, I, I'm not going to be able to say for sure that they did or didn't do it. I just we just got to we got to let it see it play out. Okay, let me see if we can get a few more questions here. Okay, B Straw, do you see Ian Book getting drafted? And if so, which team would you like to see him go to? I don't really have a specific team that I'd like to see him go to, simply because. I mean, from an NFL standpoint, I follow my favorite team, and that's the Denver Broncos. And I don't know if Ian Book would be a fit there because they already have a young quarterback, Drew Locke. They have Brett Rippon, who's a young quarterback. I think Ian Book and Brett Rippon are very similar. I'd probably take Brett Rippon over over Ian Book, so I don't think that's a fit. Denver needs like a veteran quarterback to kind of come in and back up Drew Locke. I'm actually a lot higher on Drew Locke than a lot of other people are. So I don't think I don't think I have a I don't think I have enough of a knowledge of quarterback depth charts or or systems to say this is where he would fit. So I just I I can't I can't really speak to a team. Do I think he's going to get drafted? I, honestly, I'm 50-50 and I I'd, I'd probably lean towards no, he doesn't get drafted simply because we're seeing some other quarterbacks trending up and I think his pro day is going to hurt him. I think not only did he not answer questions at his pro day, he cemented the questions. And that is the ability to throw the deep ball. He he looked I and mean, he sub five hundred on on balls past twenty. He was definitely sub five hundred on balls past thirty yards, and I think he was about seven for twelve on balls that were past twenty. He had a couple right at twenty that were caught, but he was uh, he was definitely sub five hundred on balls past thirty. If I my recollection of the stats I had take place, and that's going to hurt him in my opinion, because he needed a good pro day. So I could see guys like Sam Erlinger, who's who's also got limitations. Uh, I could see guys like Davis Mills has already passed him. I could see Kellen Mond passing him, although I don't think Kellen Mond's any good at all. Um, you know, there's just other guys like Kyle Trask has surpassed him, in my opinion, I could see. And and I just don't think of, you know, I, I just, if he's, if he can, if he can be the eighth or ninth quarterback, he'll end up getting drafted. If he falls bo- much below that, I think since 2005, 2000, there's only been like one or two years where less than nine quarterbacks got picked. So if he can get in that range, then he should be okay. But uh, yeah, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be late. But look, at the end of the day, though, this is a cop out answer I'm about to give you, but it's true. You just need one of 32 teams to fall in love with you to get picked sometimes. I mean, you could be a guy that 30 teams are like, no, nope, we're not drafting that guy. He's not good enough. But if you get that one offensive coordinator or one quarterback's coach that falls in love with you, and this is true of any position, then you've got a shot to get drafted. And that's what Ian needs to do. And that's my hope for him because I do think he's an engaged kid. I think people are going to like him personally. I think they're going to like his work ethic and his attitude. And that's something that uh, that could get him in there. So uh, let me see here if we got any more questions. C says, how would you rank – how Notre Dame recruits and develops its defensive line. To me, outside of 2018, it's been very good, but maybe not elite, especially in the middle. Heinish MTA are fine players, but they need NFL guys at DT. There's some truth to that. I think that I think that they've been very good up the middle. I think they've been outstanding on the edge in most years. I think the up the middle is going to be a strength for this team this year, though. I, look, I don't know if we necessarily have to have NFL guys there they have NFL guys, in my opinion. They will in 2021 anyway. Jason Adam Mule is an NFL guy. Riley Mills is going to be an NFL guy. Gabriel Rubio is eventually going to be an NFL guy, although he's injured right now. I think Aiden Kayana could be an NFL guy. There's a lot of depth there on the defensive line of guys who could potentially play in the National Football League. I think in today's era of, 
of deep rotations, there's two ways to be good. One is to have a couple elite level players. And we saw that in 2018. But the other way is to have 10 really good players. And I think that's where Notre Dame has been. In my opinion, the 2019 defensive line was better than the 2018 defensive line. Even though Dalen Hayes got hurt, Julian Aguara got hurt because you had more playmakers. The numbers bear that out to a degree. The 2020 team was a much better run defense than the 2018 team was. There's a lot of reasons for that, but I think a big part of that is even though their interior guys aren't big playmakers, they were also very disruptive players and and, and good at what they were asked to do, and that made them made them effective. So, uh, but but to your point though. That's why I, I said earlier that I think a couple guys have to step up and be elite for them to take that final jump as an entire defense. So I agree with your premise. I, I would say that that doesn't need to happen for them to win a championship, but it needs to happen for them to have a top five defense. If you have a top 10 defense, you can win a national championship if your offense is good enough. But to have the kind of team where your defense is going to win you a championship and you can keep a team in the 20s, you need Isaiah Foskey to be a star. You need Jason Adamiola to step up and be a star, or Riley Mills, or somebody like that. And I, the, the the good news is, is from a recruiting standpoint, I think the last three years we've seen more and more of those players get recruited. I think when you look at the tw- and, you know Isaiah Foskey in the what was he the the 2019 class, right? To me, I said at the time, five star upside guy in the 2020 class. Riley Mills to me is a is a if he pans out the way that I think he's going to pan out, he's a day two draft pick, which means second, third round. I think he's that good. I think Jason Adamiola, if he continues to progress the way that I think he's going to, is going to be a Sheldon Day type draft pick at least. You know, And, and I think he's an NFL player. I, I think that when you look at other players in the roster, there are guys. I think Myron Tungvaloa is an NFL player late round pick in the right system. I think being on the edge is going to help make him a better player because I think he's going to get a more comfortable weight, which is going to make him a better player. So I I do think they have NFL talent. Now, how will those guys grow into that and how will they develop that and will they reach their ceilings? That remains to be seen. And oftentimes, see, that's the difference between a five-star and a top 150 guy is for me, top 150 guy may have just as high of a ceiling, but the five-star guy has a higher floor. And that that guy with the lower floor and the higher ceiling, those guys are going to not hit the ceiling as often because there's so much more work or development that needs to be done. And that's kind of the risk that Notre Dame runs, which is why it's so important that Mike Elson has b- recruited so well year after year after year because when you have consecutive good classes and certain guys don't pan out in the class before, you're still going to be pretty good because the guys that you have, uh, you, you, you have so many guys that you only need one or two of them to pan out at each you know, in each, in each class. So that's where, where I like it. See also asks if you had to draft a quarterback for Notre Dame last year between Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, Zach Wilson, uh, Jones, Trask, what order would you choose them? Mac Jones and Kyle Trask for Notre Dame last year, Trevor Lawrence. I mean, look, you know, maybe we can talk about this next week. Y'all let me know if you'd like to have this. I would, I wouldn't mind doing a a podcast where I, I talk about the five quarterbacks in this draft class. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I just, don't know if you guys want me to talk about things that aren't Notre Dame related, but this question specifically, Trevor Lawrence is the best quarterback to come out of the draft, in my opinion, in at least five years. I, I, I'm I, a big Trevor Lawrence believer. Part of it is I don't think Clemson's talent in 2020 was as good as people think it is because he made them so much better. The offensive line was a hot mess. 
Amari Rodgers and Cornell Power, good players, but they're not T. Higgins and Justin Ross. Travis Etienne's a good player, but he wasn't. He didn't have a great year because y'all how bad the offensive line was. But Trevor Lawrence put that team on a different level. I don't think they're to that. They're in 2019. Their skill players really laid an egg against Ohio State. They were dropping balls. They weren't getting off the press. The Ohio State corners abused them. But Trevor put that team on his back and just willed them to victory. He's a special player. The other guys I have I have some issues with, but there's great talent there. Justin Fields and and uh, Trey Lance to me are are my t- Trey Lance is my second favorite quarterback in this draft class. Fields for me is third. Mac Jones I think would have not been as effective in Notre Dame's offense as he was in Alabama's because he wasn't throwing to Devontae Smith, and and Notre Dame's offense requires a quarterback to make more plays than what Alabama's did from a physical standpoint. Now. The ability to make plays with your mind is something that Alabama's offense is great at. Kyle Trask is a good player, but he's he is a scheme guy. Uh, whereas some of those other guys, I mean, there's a there's a huge difference there. And Zach Wilson to me, tremendous physical talent, but I'm not on the Zach Wilson train. I'm just not. I think he's got tremendous physical gifts, but there's balls that he threw. He's not a, to me an a incredibly accurate quarterback. He can be erratic. There's also balls he threw that were brilliant highlight throws that I'm like, if he tried that against an SEC team or against Notre Dame, that's not happening. And that's it's not a shock to me that he played a much softer schedule this year and went from a dude that in 2019 had 11 touchdowns and nine picks to now all of a sudden he's his all-world quarterback. I, I would take Justin Fields. I would take Trey Lance before I would take Kyle Wilson. That's just, that's just my prediction. That's just my uh, opinion. Um, let's see here. Uh, no, I have not, and they would not want me to do that. But I appreciate it, Roderick, that you think that you think I should think about that. But no, I I, I have not. Okay, let's see if we have anything else before we move on. You guys are having a lot of black rush. Relax, my man. It's all good. Everything's gonna be all good. Um, let's see here. Okay, here you go. I think Jacqueline Johnson at Ohio State is Jordan's brother. They're not brothers. Uh, they are. They, I don't. I don't. They might be cousins, but they're definitely not brothers. They played at the same high school, but not brothers. Uh, Brandon asks uh, thoughts on Jaden Bellamy. He's blowing up lately with some huge offers. Always thought he was a Plan C guy type of guy. I mean, he's a nice player, but to me, he's he's kind of what Notre Dame has gotten in the past. Good, solid player. Not a guy you're beating Alabama and Clemson with. There are definitely other players on the board that that are better than him. If they were going to take five DBs, so like two corners, two safeties, and maybe a swing guy, I'd be okay taking him as the f- fifth guy and the swing guy, but you, you, they they have to recruit better. And there's definitely better guys on the board for me that that could be. The, here's an interesting question. Corey D, should Notre Dame go after Dabo in a couple of years? Call me crazy, but I think he would leave Clemson for Notre Dame. If you win one title at Notre Dame, you're a legend. I think Dabo Sweeney is a, a heck of a head coach, but I think Dabo is a fit coach. And I think what has made him so good at Clemson wouldn't work at Notre Dame. And, and it takes a unique type of coach. I think Nick Saban could win at Notre Dame. And I, I'm in a minority here because he wouldn't be able to recruit. You can't buy players. He wouldn't need to. If Nick Saban came to Notre Dame, Notre Dame would have would, – they'd recruit well, and they'd be one of the best coach teams in the country, and they'd be freaking strong and tough. Uh, so I think Notre Dame – Nick Saban could win at Notre Dame. No question about it. I don't think Dabo could win at Notre Dame. I just think his style is unique to – that kind of school, a, a state school, a Southern school. 
his his charm would not be as charming at a place like Notre Dame, in my opinion. So no, I I don't I would not go after him in in a couple of years. Great coach, but just not not that kind of guy. Okay, here we go. <laughs> All right, let's see if there's any more questions here. A lot of conversation going on, so I I am going to try to see if there's any more questions here. Corey D, you and Lou were the best together. Sorry about your loss. I had so much fun doing podcasts with Lou. I really did. He was a lot of fun to, I mean, do things with because I thought what made our show fun, and some people said that I talk too much. I talk too much all the time. I understand that. And that's what made us a combination because Lou didn't like to talk as much. He liked to kind of be succinct, succinct and to the point. But we brought such different strengths into the conversation. You know, he with him it was a story historical and in the stats and the big picture and he could just his recall was phenomenal and then I could bring an X's and O's thing and and I I, I thought it was a lot of fun and, and I think they were really good shows and, and I don't often think I do good shows but with Lou I always felt like boy that was a really good show and it was even more fun when like Lou thought it was a good show because he's very hard on himself he was very hard on himself he was way more critical of himself than he should have been and he he, he would when he would come and say, boy, that was a really good show. Like I was like, okay, I made my day. You know, Lou thought this was a good show. That must mean it was a really good show. So, I heard a lot of Caleb Collins says, I heard a lot of a bunch of players that said that Stefferson was the truth and was probably the best receiver during that time. He was the best receiver on the team in 2015 or 2016 and 2017. He just couldn't stay out of trouble. But when he was playing, he was a beast. He was very good. Very good. My favorite memory from Domer, Texas, 22. I appreciate this. My favorite memory of you and Lou together, 2000 Cotton Bowl pregame pod on BGI. I had three canceled flights due to the storms, and I had to fly into Houston and drive up to Dallas. I was so excited when both of y'all picked Notre Dame. Yeah, that didn't turn out too well. It looked it, – the game was playing out how I thought it was going to play out, except I thought Notre Dame would score a touchdown through the first – quarter and a half and then when julian love got hurt it it but i really thought notre dame's defense could keep clemson in check and they really did except when he he went he got hurt so that that was yeah i remember that we were um we both really thought that was a team that notre dame had a shot to beat that team but just the offense just um just didn't show up didn't show up that way there's a big quarterback conversation going on in the chat but uh here's part of that that i thought was interesting Name the best quarterback of the Brian Kelly era open question. Probably, I mean, small scale, who played the best in the time that they played was Malik Zaire. I mean, with all due respect, Malik was outstanding against LSU. He was he had probably the best single-game performance of any Notre Dame quarterback in the Brian Kelly era against Texas. And everyone likes to obsess over his 7-for-18 against Virginia, but he was on pace for over 200, about 250 yards passing and over 100 yards rushing. In that game, Notre Dame took a 26 to 14 lead, a play after he got hurt because he had just gone on a long run to get them into field goal range. And then I think the play after he got hurt, Kaiser hands off to CJ Procise, who runs it in for a touchdown. But I would probably say Everett Golson was the best quarterback of the Brian Kelly era up until the point he melted down against Arizona State. I thought Everett was Everett was was incredible. It's just up here, he he didn't always do what he needed to do. But I I thought he was the most talented quarterback of the Brian Kelly era. He didn't always play the best, but he to me was 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 the best of that era. And of course, he you know led Notre Dame to an undefeated season uh, as well. 
Okay, so the issue with hiring Freeman is he would leave for Ohio State if that job opened up. I, I would not. I would not say that. I, I think that there's this assumption that fans make that every every coach is dreaming to go back to his alma mater, and I don't think that's true. If if Marcus Freeman was the defensive coordinator at Ohio State and he had promised Notre Dame he'd be here for two years, and Ohio State job comes open in a year, would he leave for Notre Dame to go to Ohio State? Yes. Would Marcus Freeman, as the head coach at Notre Dame, if he was being if he was successful at Notre Dame, leave to go to Ohio State to be the head coach? I don't think that he would. Look, there's also a, a, a drive from a lot of coaches. Again, we're we're talking about a position coach leaving to go be a position coach somewhere else. Different story. But when you're a head coach at a place like Notre Dame, I don't think he would leave to go to Ohio State. I really don't. I, I think Notre Dame is a special place. And when you're here, you understand that. And he also would understand that winning at Notre Dame, you win one title at Notre Dame, you're going to be more of a legend than a coach that won two or three at Ohio State. That's just that's just a fact. I mean, I, I that's that to me is is just a fact. So here we go. Okay, see if we have any more questions. I'm trying to get through this um through this this quarterback debate and see if we have any more questions. Corey D, where's Notre Dame with Sonny Styles? It appears it's down to Ohio State Notre Dame. I don't think that's necessarily accurate. I mean, I think those are two clearly the two schools that stand out. But you know, from talking to Sonny so now almost two weeks ago at the at the Under Armour camp, it doesn't sound like he's in any hurry to decide. I think he's going to be open to other schools. If there's a school that jumps out at him more than his dad's school or his brother's school, he's going to look at them. But he's still pretty open right now. At least he, if he's not open, then he's really good at convincing people he's open. Because I. I don't think that he is in a position to to um, to get there. Indy Dog ten forty five. Blake Fisher is competing with Spindler for left guard, not left tackle. Patterson is the left tackle. Baker just won right tackle. Lug is right guard. That's not accurate. Uh, Blake Fisher has not taken a single snap of guard all spring. Could he play guard? Yeah, I've talked about this a ton. I I actually like him better at guard, uh, but he is not competing with Spindler for left guard, he is playing left tackle beside Spindler right now. Could that change in the fall? Could he move to guard? Yes. I said earlier in the show, I'd like to see those two rotate at guard. But right now, he is not playing guard. He's playing tackle. Uh, Brian Kelly also said in his most recent press conference that they are going to leave Josh Lug at tackle because he's more comfortable at tackle. That could change. Yes. But based on what we've seen in practice and based on what Brian Kelly said, that's not necessarily accurate. Okay, see if we have any more questions. Okay, the chat is getting a little bit out of hand. I'm all for debate. I like intense debate. You guys know that. Let's chill out a little bit with the name calling here. Okay. Okay, Christopher, here's a good question. How can anyone get an accurate eval on Mac Jones considering all the talent around him? This is where I think we have to understand a couple things about how to properly evaluate quarterbacks. And I think the one thing that NFL teams are seeing in Mac Jones that I saw when I studied his film and – when I got my hands on more all 22 film after the season, you really see it. Yes, he had talent around him, but you can you can deter you can determine things about a quarterback that are independent of talent. And part of that is what is his decision making like? How does he process reads? How does he handle the pocket? And to me, when I look at Mac Jones, I see a guy that's about as as good as any quarterback in the country when it comes to, if not the best when it comes to processing the defense pre and post snap, getting the ball exactly where it needs to go. And I think that's a, that's a skill that can't always be taught. 
Notre Dame fans saw that firsthand, and they've seen that firsthand for years. Mac Jones is incredibly smart. He is is his decision making is is outstanding. His timing is tremendous, and you can see that stuff from film. And that doesn't have anything to do with his talent. Now, does his talent maybe give him more confidence to make throws that other quarterbacks wouldn't make? Sure, and he played in a great scheme. But but Mac Jones is a is a is a good football player because of those things. Now. Would I take him in the top 10? No. A lot of these quarterbacks I wouldn't take in the top 10. If we're actually talking about value, then maybe you do. But if we're talking about best players in the draft, quarterback's going to go in the top 10 whether he's a top 10 player or not, just because of the, the way that quarterback is treated by NFL teams. But if it was just about talent, no. He would he would, uh, he would would not be a top 10 pick. Okay, let's see here. Uh, uh, Saban James says, what are your thoughts on Keenan Bailey, the Ohio State GA? He was a G at Notre Dame, and he's a Notre Dame grad. I don't know a lot about Keenan as a coach. I've had a couple interactions with him talking off the off the air, off the record, but I don't know a lot about him as from a coaching standpoint. But um, you know, he I know a couple people that think highly of him, but I don't I don't really have it. You guys are putting me on a spot today. Here we go. Um Wade, my man, chill out a little bit with the name calling, all right? I don't want to have that stuff. You guys need to relax, okay? Corey D, Brian, prediction time. Who will be the Notre Dame coach in a couple of years? Give me two names. Look, my two names, it's just me. Assuming he has a winning record this year, my two names are Jeff Brom and Marcus Freeman. Those are my two names. That's it. That's where I'm at right now. Now, that could change. You know, we'll see. Tracy Tipton, Brian, it seems to me Jordan Johnson may not be as hyped as advertised. I don't think that's a fair thing to say. I, I think that this is – look, Tracy, I'll say this. If this was just related to Jordan Johnson and his development and where he was as a player, I could agree with you. But this is something we've seen for 10 years, you know, since Brian Kelly's been here. It took Chase Claypool how long to finally emerge. It took Miles Boykin how long to emerge. You know, Miles Boykin then plays a freshman. He barely played as a sophomore mop-up duty, and then as a junior, he barely played. I don't think Miles Boykin caught a pass his first two years. I'm actually going to look that up right now and see if he did. But this has been a problem at Notre Dame for years, and I don't think it's fair to say, you know, he's not as good. I think he is talented. I've talked to, to different sources who have said this kid's really talented. He just doesn't get much of a chance. Yeah, Miles Boykin in his second year uh, at Notre Dame caught six passes for 81 yards, and it was all in mop-up duty. He caught two two passes for 36 yards against Syracuse, one against Duke, one against Miami, one against Army, one against Virginia Tech for a touchdown. So not all mop-up duty, but it was an also an injured receiving core. So six catches in his first two years, and then he eventually becomes a third-round draft pick. This has been an issue for a long time. And, and that's why I think it's, it's not fair to say, Hey, yeah, it's because the player is not as good. I think maybe that's true, but the evidence has said that it's, it's harder to, to develop younger players in Notre Dame because of what they choose to do. Omar Austin, what's your ideal run pass ratio uh, for Notre Dame this season? If the offense is opening up, I don't have a, I don't have, I'm not one of those people who believes in run pass ratios. I think it depends on what the defense is doing. I think it depends on what your playmakers are looking like. I mean, look, if teams want to, come out and say we're going to put eight nine in the box and not let you run then go 80 20 for all i care as long as you're moving the ball if a team is, is balancing it out and you're just running right down their throat the whole game and it's it's 70 30 the other way i don't care do what you got to do to win a game and a lot of that is going to be creating explosives and and attacking the defense where they're weak 
and it's going to change from week to week. I'm not one of those people. It's got to be 60, 40 or 50, 50. It's to me, balance to me is about being good, being efficient and explosive in both the run and pass. Because the, when you're that you get to the playoff and Alabama is going to be good enough to take one of those away. Are you good enough to beat them with it? Notre Dame ran the ball effectively against Alabama in the Rose Bowl in the first half. They did. But Notre Dame couldn't make enough plays in the pass game to score points. Or And then when Alabama finally said, okay, you're not going to be able to run on us, they weren't good enough to go beat them in the pass game. Same thing happened in 2018 against Clemson. If you go back and look at Notre Dame early, they were running the ball early. You remember that short yardage play early in the Clemson game, first quarter, where Javar Armstrong carried the ball and the Notre Dame offensive line just took Clemson and just drove them like eight, nine yards off the ball. I think six of their first 10 runs were efficient runs in that game. But then Clemson realized very early that Ian Book's not going to throw the ball downfield. So they started run blitzing a lot more. They started get, creeping their safeties down. And he wasn't going to throw the ball, and they shut the run game down. So they weren't efficient or explosive in both areas. They were efficient, explosive running the ball. But a good team can take that away from you. You have to be good at both. And that, to me, is balance. It's not about run-pass ratios, especially since, for me, I consider bubble screens, look screens off RPOs, I consider that an extension of the run game. I don't consider those necessarily pass plays when you look at the structure of your offense. Yes, they're technically pass plays, but as far as your objectives, I don't, my, you set goals for each play. So here's what we should be averaging on our inside zone. Here's what we should be averaging on our outside zone. Here's what we should be averaging on our pass plays and different types of things. Your desired, okay, here's how we know we're having success. We're having success because we were efficient on 60% of these runs and we averaged X number of yards per carry. And we were good running right and left. Pass plays the same way. Hey, look, we had a really low yards per attempt because, yeah, we hit a couple of these routes that were big, but we went two of 10 for 80 yards. You know, can we live with that? No, we need to find something that's more efficient. Or, yeah, we can live with that because of the nature of when this call is made. So that's how you evaluate things. And when you evaluate the perimeter screens, you're going to evaluate them on a per play, yards per play and a yards per catch basis is going to look a lot like what you evaluate your outside runs. And so that's why, to me, they're an extension of it. Plus, there are a lot of things you're going to be using in RPOs. So that is where we're at with that. So I think that we are wrapping up with the questions. I think at this point in time, it's just the chat. Okay, here we go. John uh, Clement has a comment. I love the idea of a defensive-minded head coach and someone the players relate to. Marcus seems to just have an it factor. Still has to prove it, but I have high hopes. I You sum it up perfectly for me. I, I don't care so much about defensive-minded or offensive-minded. What I like about Marcus Freeman is his defense is geared towards stopping explosive offenses. I think that is going to make him appreciate the need for an explosive offense even more. So the decisions he would make as a head coach would be to, I, I think, would be to go find an explosive offensive coordinator. It could, guy could already be on campus for all we know. But that's where I think he needs to be. But yeah, he, there's just something about him that does make him seem different. And you just sometimes you just see it like when Urban Meyer was an assistant coach, there were people that covered the team back then that just said there was something different about Lou. Lou Tsumoji would say this. There was something different about that guy. You just knew he was going to be a great head coach someday. And Marcus Freeman to me has that those attributes. And now he just has to go prove it as a defensive coordinator. I think we're good here. So I, I think that is where we're at. So I appreciate everybody for being here today. I know this went long, but I really needed this. Uh, I needed to be able to talk some Notre Dame football. I needed to be hanging out with y'all. Uh, it was a lot of fun to be on the chat today. Appreciate everybody taking time out of their Friday to meet with me and meet with Vince and um, and to talk about some Notre Dame football. So we'll definitely be back 
we're starting to zero in a little bit on what our schedule is going to look like. Still trying to figure out what we're going to do topically, but definitely looking into having more live shows. We had more this week, I think, than we've ever had uh, in a week. Wednesday night is going to be our is now going to be our our sort of our our nightly. We're definitely going to start doing Wednesday night ones where we're going to focus on recruiting. May do some film breakdowns there and then. We'll talk about the latest in recruiting. We'll do all types of different things, and of course, answer your questions. So. Appreciate everybody being with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube and hit the notification bell so that you know when we are doing shows and when we schedule a live podcast. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our, our podcast on whatever platform you're using. Please give us a five-star rating. We do very much appreciate that. And of course, check out irishbreakdown.com. I hope everybody has a great, safe rest of your weekend, and we will talk to all of you again here very soon. We will be back on Monday to talk more football and uh, and hopefully we'll be closer to, to, to really getting into what our schedule is going to be. And of course, next week is going to be a very fun, busy week as we get ready for the last week of Notre Dame football and the lead up to a draft. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. So we'll definitely have some draft talk next week. So everybody be good. Talk to you all again soon. happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com